Welcome to Free Fall RC Podcast. Am I supposed to record this? <laughs> yes. Do I need to be recording? Are you recording <laughs> me? Somebody. Hopefully somebody's recording me. Yeah, I think we got two or three records going, so we yeah, should have enough good. backup. All right. All right, so here we go. Welcome to another episode of Free Fall RC Podcast. I'm Steve, and here with me is Kevin. Hey, guys. We have Andy. Hey, now. George. Hello. And welcome our guest host, Eric Bircham. Hey, y'all. All right. And today we have a special interview for you. It's a Marine One pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Travis Patterson. Hello. Hello. Hi. All right. So this is episode 238, Marine One with Lieutenant Colonel Travis Patterson. First, we'll check in with everyone's week. Who'd like to go first? I nominate George. I'll go first. Oh, all right. Okay. So, <laughs> flying-wise, I've flown quite a bit this week. I, I actually got the, the big mamba out. One of our uh, local flyers came by and uh, wanted to see it. So we got it out and flew it around quite a bit. Then, um, been working on getting more of these little helicopter projects put together and flying and uh, I finished up one more of them and made some major progress on on the the boat you know the P, the PBR the river boat <clears throat> it'll be ready oh, probably nice. here in another two weeks and uh, started also started uh, another 3d printing project I'm printing out a the uh, Los Angeles class submarine and I found the model on the Nautilus dry dock site for a very reasonable price of forty nine ninety five, <laughs> and huh. I think they scaled it out at like maybe one ninety no I think it's like 41 inches long so I scaled it up and I'm going to make it 136 scale, which will be 112 inches. Wow. So Damn. It's just going to be a, a skim line surface kind of craft. I'm not going to make it submersible, but, you know, just where you can kind of drive it around like a boat. Nice. But it'll be impressive. I might uh, make some of the, uh, the tubes active. Can't shoot pyrotechnics from an airplane, but hey. <laughs> yeah, nobody said, yeah, uh, said you couldn't yeah. shoot torpedoes. Just saying. <laughs> nice. Fish, fish and wildlife may be after me, but you know, <laughs> right? Like the FAA be off of me. Mm-hmm. And just uh, been busy at work too, but uh, had a couple of people stop by this week. It's good. Kind of breaks the monotony of being shut in all the time. Went camping this weekend, forgot about that, went to Natural Tunnel State Park, took the bomber RV, scared a lot of people, and then a lot of people got a lot of thumbs up. Um, <laughs> there was some crazy <laughs> guy there, not to get into politics, but there was some crazy guy there. He looked like a normal human being, but he had proud socialists on his yeah. t-shirt. Oh, damn. And I was walking by, and I said, hey, he goes, hey. I said, it's a wild shirt you got on there. Did really? Yeah, I said. Were they, were they, were they completely out of the? I'm a complete idiot shirt. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> and, uh, 
He looks like Rufus. Like, really feel George. Like I had three eyes. And, uh, I don't know. It's just weird to see somebody like that out in the campground. Yeah, with human beings. I would have told them mm-hmm. you can't wear that shirt in a socialist country, and have it <laughs> right. be the opposite. That's the truth. Oh God, that's yeah. too funny. Yeah. So. But yeah, I had a good time. Had saw some of my family I hadn't seen in a while. One of my sisters, both my sisters were there. But uh, and my mom came out. She's eighty eight, so uh, it was nice. It's a local campground, pretty close, about thirty minutes away. Nice. Cool. I had a good time, but that that was my week. Uh, hey, I had a. You were talking about your PBR, George, the one uh, you're making out of the the plastic model. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've tested it and stuff, but I was looking at some of your pictures with that big flat bottom on that thing. Are you worried about it? Maybe capsizing or take a turn too fast or something like no. the, the water handling of it. That thing's going to be so heavy. I'm going to put like two, 5,000 four sails in it. And yeah. just it just doesn't one. seem like there's going to be a lot of like to get it to set down in the water. It's, the water's going to be kind of close to the edge. No? But since, but since it's a jet boat, it, yeah. it, should, it should do good. It does okay. good in the kiddie pool. Right. <laughs> I figured you were going to test it. I just I mean, as long as it up. I'd hate along, for you to sink it. it. As long as it just moves along, you know, at a snail's pace, and I can turn it around and back it up a little bit. That's yeah, but all. I know you. It won't move at a snail's pace. <laughs> right. be, be <laughs> jumping across the uh, buoys and stuff. <laughs> Some hydro ramps. Yeah, George. exactly. Off the 3D, 3D printing some submarine ramps before we know. <laughs> yeah, make sure you video it. Your first uh, send off yeah. on that. I want to see hey, it. Hey, I tell you what, if they make these printers any larger, I'll make one I can get in and ride. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, you know, at least have it, you know, where my shoulders go up in it, in my head, and I could just walk around in the pool with yeah, it. Yeah, like the James Bond boat. Those yeah, where that big. You could, I mean, while you're printing those big plugs with the helis, you could yeah. probably make a kayak size PBR. Yeah. See what oh, yeah. yeah, I can make it pretty good size. It just have to chop it up. Yeah, I'm a plastic baby. It's all. Uh huh. Uh huh. All right. Who's next? Want me to go? I can go. Do it. Sure. Uh, so George, hearing about the sub and all that stuff, dude, I'm gonna propose the most selfish thing I've ever thought of. I want to do a show uh, about your whole submarine adventure and and maybe get the sub guy on or something because I have no idea how these subs work. And I know they work a lot like the actual submarines, mm-hmm. which I don't have any idea how those work either. You know, I, I know they go up and down. I don't know yeah. how that works. I'm I'm curious about it as well. I'll just tell you this right now. They are complicated as crap. And to get them to, to dive level and everything and to do just right. Steve Hodges, you know, he has really got into it big time. And I don't think his Apache has been in the air since his sub went in the water, but it, it is very complicated. That's why I'm going at it from a complete hillbilly idea of a skim line, you know, where it's just kind of in the water, like if it was up at the dock, you know, right. with the, with the sail sticking out and everything, and probably make the periscopes and antennas go in and out, and uh, and be able to, you know, drive it along. I'll make uh, all the control surfaces work so I can. You know, use ailerons. I'm going to use just regular radio transmitter, 2.4. Yeah. That way, I, you know, I can, I can keep it good and straight in a turn. Probably yeah. set up some mix well, and everything in it. But what, wouldn't you be able to 
to dive shallow, like under power, like just drive it underwater. Yeah, what they call a dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Dynamic diving. If yeah. you're going to make the control you, you surfaces could, work, you could probably, I'm, you know, go down like a foot or something and yeah, pop just, back up. Yeah. I just don't know about how watertight I'll make the top end of it. Oh, I got gotcha. you. It's interesting. It's very interesting. I got to watch more of that YouTube sh- channel the sub guy's got. Yeah. Find now, out them more. guys, they're serious now. I'll show yeah. up and they'll, they'll probably break my sub in half and run me off. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then when you think about it, they actually have to have, you know, air for the men that are in the sub, uh, the actual submarine. It's just crazy, man. It blows my mind, the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess it's a complete different animal, though. But anyways, going back to my week, yeah, we, we recorded on Thursday with the Heliheads, uh, and that was a lot of fun. I wrote in the show notes it sucked, but it didn't. It was a lot of fun. I had some oh, yeah. uh, some good times and some laughs, and it was it was it was very cool. And we had an Arnold sighting. So uh-huh. if anybody hasn't heard it, <laughs> you'll listen to the Heliheads. Mm-hmm. And then uh, man, Saturday I went down to South Jersey. At, uh, you know, a not Urcha event, air quotes. And <laughs> man, did I have a great time down there. Went down there, probably got there around 10 ish, maybe 10 30. I don't even remember. Set up with the planker and I got in tons of flights that like normally I'll show up on a weekend, uh, a Saturday and I'll bring some planes and some helicopters and I'll, I'll get like maybe three flights of heli when, and I only have the two, the oxy five and the 690 and then i'll have to fly a couple of planes around but man i was banging out flights on the oxy five and uh going down to the other end wasn't sure about my how my autos were going to do you know i didn't want to like auto rotate over the top of anybody so i was like let me go down to, to the last station and just do a couple down there and i was having some fun with that too man 690 oxy five just was really good time and i'm glad we did it. i saw bunch of guys i mean we can go through the list that that i took uh but it was all the regulars and even got to see some guys i haven't seen in a while like uh derek checkus and drew robinson were there yeah mm-hmm. that was really a surprise i was surprised to see those guys because i was expecting you know like charlie to come down and mike welch came down and yeah uh, you know the the normal jersey crew was there uh you know rob mcclellan and uh yeah. saw phil and his two sons uh-huh. Uh, I took notes, but of course it's in my phone somewhere else in the room yeah. here. Uh, we had the chrono chrono on the Hudson folks, right? Frank. Yeah, Frank was uh, there. He, yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep. Uh, it was really it was a good day. It was kind of hot, but no wind. A little overcast in the morning, uh, but it was great. It was it was a great time, and yeah. we did some sim and Friday night. Sim and Friday night was good too, man. Yep, and uh, that's all I've really been doing. I'll keep it short, man. All right. Yeah, I could go next. Um, it's kind of pretty much similar to your week, but so this storm that came through, well, it hit me. It hit me hard. I lost power from Tuesday um, all the way to Saturday. Yes. My internet was good for most of the time, except for Thursday morning, which was like, oh, crap, we're going to record a podcast Thursday night. Shit. Uh, I hope it comes back or I'm going to have to do it on a MiFi. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it did come back. Um, so that was all good. Um, I was on generator pretty much that whole week. Um, I even blew one of my big generators because it got so hot in our house. I was like, I'm going to hook up to central air, and even though I shouldn't. And I know the generator probably died, but 
I did, and the generator did die. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so then I was on my little hobby one, uh, the 2300-watt one that I have, the 120-volt. Um, and that lasted from pretty much Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, but, yeah, we recorded with the Heliheads folks. Um, that was a ball. That was so much fun. Yeah, Those great guys. I don't even remember what happened. That's how much fun it was. It was just a blur. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else did we do? And then Friday, yep, I simmed a little, but I had mic issues. So my power was going in and out, and basically every time my fridge kicked on, it would like my basically my TV and computer would just shut off, and I would restart. And after that, my mic just didn't work well. It was just I was too quiet, and I, I kind of got annoying. So I was like, you know what? I'm good. I got to get ready for tomorrow's uh, fun fly anyways. So I did that. I got my stuff ready. Saturday morning, I left probably around 9 o'clock. Um, still no power at the house, but I went down. You know, My wife ended up going out shopping and doing what she does when I'm not here. And it was great. It was so good. Like I didn't get a lot of flights. I might have gotten half a dozen flights. But um, just to see like Mike Welsh you know, shoot the shit with him for a while. Yeah. Charlie. Um, and his wife, and they had a granddaughter with them, um, and then all the people you mentioned. Like it's you know it was great. Like I haven't even hung out with Rob and Devin in like right. It feels like all year really since you know since the pandemic for sure. So it was great to see all of them, Frank and and just everyone, and of course Mike D. You know the planker. He's he's great to hang out with. Um, and, <laughs> and Bill was there. Yeah, yeah, Bill was there too. He showed that. up. We went yeah, up and kept, we tried coughing all over him. Yeah, yeah, that was a running joke. Every time oh, he walked geez. by, I would cough. <laughs> He's poor such Bill. a yeah, poor Bill. He was like twenty God. feet away. Wait, it's twenty or ten feet away, right? It's he like a, yeah, he said six to everybody else, but me, it was ten feet. Well, yeah, me ten feet away. Sticks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill's the best. Uh, yeah. So, but I got the power. You know, the power got fixed. Fantastic. You know, in the afternoon. So while I was driving back, I was, I was just waiting for like to go back home and have that AC. You know, just on full blast. Right. Get home, and sure enough, the AC was nice. The house was nice and cool, around sixty-eight degrees, and and oh. everything was good. And then I went, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna go take a shower, right? Come back from the field, being out in the sun all day. And I'm like, why don't I have hot water? Okay, let me go look at the boiler. Ended up, I was thinking maybe you know I need to purge the oil line or anything, something like that. But it ended up that the aquastat thing went bad. So basically, oh, what controls the water temperature and, and the power for the the burner. Um, yeah, I called someone. I'll never call someone ever again. They kind of screwed me over. <laughs> and I complained and they gave me some money back, but it ended up costing me almost 600 bucks, basically. Holy to get, cow. To get $150 part replaced, which is ridiculous. Damn. Wow. Yeah, that, that's why I, I had to complain. And they were like, we'll give you... You know, so, uh, we'll give you some money back or whatever. So they try to make it right. So I'm not too angry, but gosh, for folks that, you know, aren't handy. That wouldn't I, know, right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I think they took a, advantage of my wife, to be honest. Yeah. I see you know? that a lot. Because uh, I told them, like, you know, how much was it going to be for a diagnostic? And that's all I agreed to. And then I come home and they're like, oh, yeah, we replaced this, this, and this. And I'm like, what do you mean? Did you get approval from my wife? No. So then why'd you do this work, right? Like, yeah, I, right. I, I started getting really heated, obviously. Nobody but, hates a mechanic more than an honest mechanic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the day, they, they did what they can, and I appreciate it. So at that point, you know, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, 
all's good now. We're we're here and doing this podcast, so. Cool. <laughs> so let's see who else. Andy. Hey, before uh, Andy goes, I forgot one thing I wanted to mention about Friday night. Yeah. We had uh, Michael Shaggy Parker call in or join us in Discord from Urcha. Yes. With uh, Robert Monty. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> and you know what, dude? We bust Shaggy's balls a lot. And, uh, dude, the guy's at Urcha enjoying his vacation. He, he calls in the Discord. It was, it was tremendous. It was, yeah. it was fantastic for all of us guys who couldn't make it this year. So I got to mm-hmm. say thanks, Shaggy and Robert. Yeah. Thanks. Monty. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Cool. Travis Shaggy and Robert are, uh, they, they run another podcast, another RCLA okay. podcast. They're, they're great guys. Shaggy runs the, uh, runs the North American Speed Cup. So he, he, he is out there with the fastest pilots on the planet. It's pretty oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And is it yeah. all heli podcast as well, or is it both, uh, like fixed wing and rotor? Their podcast is all helis. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Ro- Robert will yell at you if you bring up an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was cool for them to do that. Yeah, absolutely. They were online at uh, they were on the drive through line at Dairy Queen, and we were they had oh us on God. speakerphone, and we kept yelling out orders. Uh, <laughs> Ian Joel was in Discord saying, uh, "I need a liter bottle of cola." <laughs> Just kept over and over again. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. We were all yelling out yeah. different things. Nice. Sorry, Andy. Oh, no, that's fine. I'd forgotten about that as well, but that was a lot of fun talking to those guys. And like I said on the Discord, it's always a good time to be on the phone with Monty when he's driving around town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sailor's mouth he has. Oh, yes. Um. So, yeah, we did. Uh, the sim on Friday was a lot of fun, like you guys said. And the uh, Heliheads record was fun, too. Yeah. Um, those pretty good bunch of guys. Of course, I would never tell them that. You know, I don't want their heads to get too big. But so publicly, I'll just say they all suck. And they know it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I got out and did a little bit of flying. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> Monday awesome. morning early. Blew the Oxy4 Max a few times. Uh, did have a bit of an incident on the last battery. I was doing a bunch of autos and my grass in the backyard is kind of big. It's a little bit unkept right now because I've not been keeping up with the mowing. So one of my autos, I was coming in a little too fast and was sliding in and, uh, those oxy skids just dug in the grass and it tipped over forward. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, didn't, all I broke was a servo horn. Which is the ones I run on there, those like um, orange, really, really breakable horns the, for the, the sacrificial mini servos. Ones. Yes. Yep. I run those too. Uh, but they, I mean, it takes nothing to break one of them. Yeah. But that's good in a way, bad oh, yeah. in another way. This Oxy 4, I actually end up having to take the servo out to change the horn, which I find really stupid and annoying. Most I'm, I know some of you guys always take servos out to change the horn, but I find that unnecessary. So, uh-huh. but anyway, I got it fixed today. Went and did a test hover. It's, it's everything seems fine. No big deal. Um, and doing plenty of 3D printing, plenty of Fusion 360 and 3D printing. Nice. 
yep, kind of been having a ball with that stuff. Cool. Designing parts and, you know, little odds and ends I need for different things. Nice. So it's, it's, it's cool. Been having a lot of fun with that. It's amazing what you can come up with to print. Like when I first got one, uh, my, our buddy Jeff, he said to me, so what are you going to print with it when you get it? And I'm like, I don't know. But then <laughs> it's a solution looking for a problem. It's like five <laughs> years later, I'm still printing stuff. It's like, I don't know what I'm right. I, I printed, right. I designed and printed a ton of stuff. Yeah. Probably one of my favorite things about it. Like I've done not a lot, but I've done machining and woodworking and all various, lots of fabrication, you know, around the farm, larger right. stuff. And in all those things, it's really difficult to do, like, everything nice and smooth, you know, radius corners and curves and compound angle, or not angles, but compound curves and stuff like that. Right. But what's cool with when I do a part with this 3D printer, I radius everything and make everything nice and smooth and slick. And when it prints out, it just looks fantastic. You know, yeah. it, it takes like if you're making something out of wood, you gotta you know sand the corners or route everything. Or in in metal, unless you're doing like a CNC machining center, and even then, it adds a lot of time and expense to whatever you're making if you go and put a two or three millimeter radius on every edge. Yeah. But with the 3D printer, it's no problem. You know, as long as you got somewhere to to start the print at, and then like I'm doing, I think two and three millimeter on stuff even coming off the bed and it's it's working fantastic and it's just really nice to be able to smooth everything out like that and get a bracket or a part that would be very difficult to make in any other way so i'm finding that really 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 cool yeah and that's an advantage to your design especially when it's a 3d printed part because any 90 degree you know, angles, mm-hmm. they're going to mm-hmm. have a tendency to break easier when you, when you round them. Right. Uh, yep. then, then you're adding strength to it. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, that's a fact in any, any type of thing, right. like right. Even with metal or something, if you've got a 90 degree, that that's where you get a stress riser. So, but it's just so easy to do with the 3d printer. You just design it and stick it in there. And like I said, come back, two, three, four, ten hours later, and I got a nice part that's, you know, works yeah. good. Yeah. Awesome, so, man. having a blast with that. Yep. Cool. That's about the about all I've been up to. A little bit make, of flying. You're making me want a 3D printer, even though I have absolutely no need for one at all. <laughs> well, you say that, and I put it off for like three yeah. years because I was like, nah, I don't want to get into it. I don't want to. I don't want to put the effort in to learn it and to learn this and learn yeah. that. You know what I did is I, if I need something, I'll, I'll, I'll model it up, measure mm-hmm. it carefully and then just print it on thingy first. Have somebody yeah. print it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It comes in three days or something. It's pretty right. good. Yeah. But see, like me, if you, if you do it and you have it in your house, you start a print and you go to bed and when you wake up, you've got your part. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And if it doesn't, doesn't fit, fit, you just mm-hmm. do it again. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I have had to do a couple things more than once. For your it's not a not a big deal, you know, a, a fifty cents, eighty cents, a dollar worth of filament, you know, yeah. like a part. It's sure. just time, you know, an extra couple mm-hmm. hours or whatever. But yeah, I'm I'm having a blast. Awesome. You should get one, Eric. All right, one of these days. <laughs> well, I, I need to get a just new house first. My 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 house is 
the whole house has become my hobby room. It's not good. No. Oh, jeez. <laughs> See, if you buy a printer, then you can print different brackets and stuff and you know, hang everything up. Organizational. Yeah. Everything is already really well organized. It still fills up my room and the kids' rooms. And there's a plane that fell off the wall somewhere sitting on, on the kitchen table that I got to get hung up again tonight. You have, you have to build a shed. Trouble. Yeah, you got to build a workshop. <laughs> I got 3D print myself a shed. That's a good idea. I like that. <laughs> there you go. It'll take 40 years to print. <laughs> they got they got things that like big machineries that do just like a 3D printer with like concrete now, yeah. like these fabricated homes. Yeah, I know that with any, any almost any material you can imagine. Yeah. It's crazy. All right, uh, are we ready to go into the main topic then? Sure. Yeah. All right. All right, Eric, take it off with the introduction. All right. Well, um, so I, we already mentioned that, that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Travis Patterson is with us today. He was, until very recently, one of the pilots of uh, Marine One, which for anybody who's not familiar with Marine One, it's similar to Air Force One. It is the helicopter that transports the President of the United States of America. So it's uh, – I don't actually know how hard that job is to get, but I know that not very many people get it. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a rare thing. Yeah. It's a rare thing to be able to talk to somebody who's had that job and, and, um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's not actually an RC hobbyist, but being, being a lover of helicopters, I figured he would fit right in with this crowd. And I'm, I'm sure yeah, it'll be true. We could probably uh, let it, we could probably let it go since he's flown Marine one and, yeah, <laughs> we'll let it slide this time, just this once. Yeah, I have known Travis on and off. Of course, he's been deployed all over the world and and all he's lived all over the United States. But I have known him on and off for twenty years. And and uh, his wife is on the short list of of people that my family would drop everything and come to the rescue if it were ever needed. I grew up with her, and she was like a sister to me as kids. And so, uh, even though I have probably not spent more than 20 hours with Travis in my entire life. He holds a very special place in my heart and in the hearts of all my family. So I'm, nice. I'm very thankful for him and for his service and, and to have him on today. Uh, I figured, um, Travis is a, a pretty understated person. And I'm reading his, his bio, which his wife was kind enough to send me. I don't know if he knew she was going to do that or not, but she uh, mentioned it. Sort yeah. Of, yeah. But, sort yeah. of. <laughs> So, uh, so I, I got your bio, and of course it's it's a it's a Marine Corps bio. It's not it's not real colorful. It's not real narrative. It's a lot of facts, mm-hmm. and um, the facts that are presented is as clean and dry as they are presented. Uh, I th- I think they I think they paint an appropriate picture of the quality of person that you are. So I want to read your bio with your permission. Okay. Certainly, yeah. Lieutenant Colonel Patterson enlisted in the Marine Corps on June 6, 1994, and served six years at 1st Battalion, 23rd Marines in Houston, Texas, while attending Texas A&M University. Upon graduation with a degree in political science, he was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps and reported to the basic school in July of the same year. After completing the basic school, 2nd Lieutenant Patterson reported to Pensacola, Florida for flight training, where he earned his wings in October of 2002 and reported to Marine Aircraft Group 39 for training as an AH-1W student pilot. Upon completion of the AH-1W syllabus, Patterson reported to Marine Light Attack Helicopter Squadron 267 in May of 2003 and deployed to Okinawa in support of the unit deployment program, returning in December. 
During his tour with the Stingers, First Lieutenant Patterson deployed with the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2005, and again with the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2007. He was promoted to captain in 2005 and graduated from the Weapons and Tactics Instructor Course in 2006. During his tenure with the Stingers, Captain Patterson served in the Safety, Operations, and Maintenance Department until leaving the squadron in 2008. After leaving the Stingers, Captain Patterson reported for service as an AH-1W Fleet Replacement Squadron Instructor and Pilot Training Officer. Within two months of checking into the 303, Captain Patterson began the conversion syllabus to the AH-1Z and would spend the next year preparing pilots and crew for the upcoming transition to the AH-1Z. As a newly qualified AH-1Z pilot, Captain Patterson was selected for duty as an operational evaluation augment pilot. He participated in the operational test of the AH-1Z. He was responsible for the planning, briefing, and leading of operation evaluation flights and the revision of the first draft of the AH-1Z training manual. Upon his return, Captain Patterson participated in the first operational deployment of the AH-1Z. After returning from deployment, he was promoted to major and attended the Air Command and Staff College in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was conferred a master's degree in 2013. Major Patterson returned to Marine Aircraft Group 39 in 2013 and reported for service as the assistant maintenance officer and the maintenance officer. During his tour, he supported numerous detachments for training and exercises and in April 2014, assumed the duties of the executive officer. Major, Pat Major Patterson served as the, as the executive officer until August 2015 when he detached from the 267 and reported to VMM 166 reinforced for service as the executive officer and H-1 detachment officer in charge in support of the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit deployment until 2016. After returning from his fifth deployment, Major Patterson reported to Marine Helicopter Squadron 1 and transitioned to the VH-60N and VH-3D. And for those of you who don't know, those are the white tops. He was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in 2017 and currently serves as the Operations Officer and Marine One Aircraft Commander. Lieutenant Colonel Patterson has accumulated more than 3,800 flight hours and was the recipient of the 2016 Order of Daedalans. U.S. Marine Corps Exceptional Pilot of the Year Award, and the 3D Maw Aviator of the Year. His personal awards include the Meritorious Service Medal, Air Medal with Strike Flight Numeral 5, and three Navy Commendation Medals. He is married to the former Mrs. Natasha Woods of Port Aransas, Texas. They have two children, Waylon, 13, and Marin, 11. Welcome, Travis. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, Absolutely. Awesome. Wow. How, I feel like an underachiever. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Man. It's like, damn, what did I do in my life? Well, absolutely. <laughs> a lot of being in the right place at the right time, I think. That's how you it's a lot right. of sacrifice. Uh, a, a lot a lot of very a lot of very capable people say that, Travis. <laughs> it's a pattern I've noticed. Yeah, mm. thank you. Awesome. Uh, so let me ask you real quick, Travis. How how did it feel sure. to have someone read your bio like that? It's uh it was surreal, actually. I've never actually sat down and listened to somebody else read it. Right. So one of the things mm -hmm. we do every time we go to a new command is you update your bio and you send it to the next commander going to. You know, Marine <laughs> Aviation is a real small community, but just in case nobody knows you by reputation, you send them your bio and just right. so they kind of know. But but Eric's right. They're very 
you, you're very factual, not embellished. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to use a lot of grandiose terms and things like that. Yeah, I, I actually, I actually like it, Travis, just because knowing you and how clear cut you are, I, I think the facts speak for themselves. There's no need right. to yeah. embellish anything in your bio. It's wonderful, right. just the way it is. There's a lot of color in between those lines. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna take that bio and kind of not dissect it, but we're gonna go into it a little bit. Um, I'm gonna sure. start off with just kind of asking some questions about your background. You know, mm-hmm. maybe when your your earlier years, um, and then we'll kind of go from there. So, okay. so Travis, where where did you grow up? So I grew up mostly in Houston. Um, and in fact, I even I, I I grew up in Houston. I, my my dad was in the Marine Corps as well. Uh, okay. I came off of active duty when I was about five or six, and we moved to Houston. And I I lived there until I went to college. Ah, awesome. Um, and did you have interest in aviation as a kid? I did. You know, my, my father was a Marine F4 Phantom backseater for oh, wow. 20, Ooh, wow. 20 plus years. My okay. grandfather <laughs> flew B. Yeah, my grandfather we, flew we need to get your, your father on next. Yes. <laughs> yeah. so, sorry to, to interrupt you. Yeah. He'd be happy to do it. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, awesome. my grandfather flew B-24s in World War II. And so I, just, <laughs> wow. I, I grew up around it. And that's wow. the only thing I ever really wanted to do. So what does your, your great-grandfather fly? What and your great-great-grandfather that <laughs> was they were a little ahead of the, a little ahead of their time. You know, fine. I'm I'm third generation, I guess. Wow. Yeah. That is something else. Yeah. I've got goosebumps all over me. And it's, <laughs> and it's fifth fifth generation uniform service. Is that correct? Did I get that's, that right? Yeah, yeah that's correct. <clears throat> yeah. Well we've only had aircraft for so long, guys. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're doing the best they can. That, Travis, that just, I'm telling you, it gives me goosebumps. Thank you so much for your service and your family's okay. service. Yeah, I've got a right. I've got a big B-24 hanging over my head as well as a B-17. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Um, an F-4. Uh, yeah, that was your yeah. jam for a while. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I'm, that's just uh, that's just unbelievable. And it's humbling awesome. sometimes. I think about you know the, my, my grandfather and my father's service as well. It's it's uh, the only well, grew up around pilots and the only thing I really wanted to do. That's nice. awesome. What a legacy of service and dedication. Exactly. I'm just thinking what yeah. this one family has done for America is, is just right. beyond imagination. It's just blowing my mind. You guys I'm are making to... me blush. jeez. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm going to have to just stand up for the rest of the show because my, my back, <laughs> the hair on my back standing straight up. <laughs> I tell you, wow, nothing awesome. gets me going than, than somebody that uh, loves and sacrifices for my country. Well, thank you. Wow. All right. Uh, let's see here. What is your earliest memory of actual flight? And, you know, what was it like? Uh, I mean, I, I remember, you know, as a kid, when, when my dad was still flying, we, you know, he, you know most, of, most of my earliest memories are of actual flying were when I was maybe six or seven when we lived in Houston. And my dad was a reservist at VMFA 112 in, in Dallas. Okay. And they would fly down to Houston occasionally and we would go watch them land. Uh, so I remember as a kid watching Phantoms land and take off at Ellington from the wow. on the other side of the fence. And That's bad. I just remember, you know, yeah. I would go out there sometimes. My dad would take me out there on the weekends, and I've got you know pictures of me and my Boy Scout troop in front of F fours when I was a kid. It, that so I've just kind of always grown up around it. Oh man! Um, what what about and, the first? What about the first time that you actually left the ground in an aircraft? What was that? Do you remember? The you mean outside of a commercial flight? Uh, I mean, first time I flew on a commercial airplane, I was probably seven or eight. But the yeah. first time I actually 
flew an airplane was a Cessna 172 and I was about 20 maybe nice 21 okay. something like that and that yeah. was the first time I did it um and awesome. I, I was hooked I loved it absolutely loved da- it. David's yeah. got you beat by 17 years by the way he did it when he was three <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a special deal though yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm trying Travis I'm trying to get it so when did you commit to becoming an aviator um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint the exact time, but, but I, I do know that it was the only thing I ever wanted to do really. I remember similar, you know, when I was a kid, I knew when, before my dad got off of active duty, I knew what he did mm-hmm. and I knew we were around pilots all the time, but I didn't really grasp the greater, you know, scope of things until I got a little older. And truthfully, it was mostly on the, his drill weekends when his reserve buddies would come down to Houston, they'd fly their phantoms down to Houston and just kind of being around that sort right. of most of them were Vietnam era F4 pilots. And, you know, Holy they shit, were man. Kind of wow. a, you know, they were a boisterous, I guess. That was a dan- that's a yeah. dangerous gig right there. Yeah. Yeah. They were yeah. kind of larger than life and loud and funny. And, um, you know, I just did. And then you, it, and it was right around the same time when, you know, Top Gun comes out and all this, all, all right. these other oh, things yeah. that, you know, you just like, uh-huh. I was uh, I was a very easy sell to a Marine Corps recruiter when I pulled out. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so. Did you want to just fly fixed wing or you know helicopters kind of? Yeah, so I wanted to fly. Originally, I wanted to fly F-18s. Um, nice. No offense to the F-18 community, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I love flying helicopters. I, and yeah. I, I, I mean, I would. There's if I could go back and make the choice, I would. I would make the same one. You know, the, when I finished the selection portion of flight school, there were 12 Marines. 11 of us got helicopters, and one guy got C-130s because it's just what the Marine Corps needed that week. And it's the best thing that, that ever happened to me. I love I, – I would not want – I would not change a thing if given the opportunity. Mm, awesome. So we have uh, – uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. It's uh, that's, that's actually funny. When, when I was at your wedding, uh, you know, I, I didn't get to talk to you very much. My dad had – spent some time with you and, and spent, of course, spent a lot of time always with Ted Marion. Yeah. And, uh, and there, he, he was all boohooing up for you because you, you had, I think you had found out that you were going to be flying helos. And, uh, and he was yeah. like, yeah, he's like, I feel, I feel so bad for Travis. He wanted to fly fighters and he's got stuck flying helicopters. And I looked at my dad. I was like, Oh yeah, that poor fucking baby. <laughs> go, go fly helicopters all over the world. Yeah, me a river. <laughs> I got kind of bummed about it for about thirty seconds, and then yeah, I, you know, I, then I was them. like, you know what? I mean, we got I'm this other really awesome here. thing this, for you to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had this opportunity that people would kill for. I mean, sure. it, you know, yeah, absolutely, would, would, would absolutely love to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, getting into uh, the military a little bit, uh, sure. One of the questions we had was uh, we talked about your call sign, and I, yeah. <laughs> and how you got it. Can you explain what it is and, and how you got it? So, unfortunately, you know, like like this storied call sign tradition of naval aviation history, my story is not very good. Um, you know, I went if to Texas. If you're from Texas, it's pretty good. If, yeah, if you <laughs> People around that, here know, know, yeah. Yeah. They'll get I the went joke. to Texas A&M, and the mascot of our arch rival, University of Texas, is Bevo. And so that's why they, people started calling. They originally started calling me Longhorn, but it took too long on the radio to say it. Right. So somebody said, oh, it's Bevo, and I shortened it to Bevo. So people have been calling me Bevo for about 18 years, and it doesn't even occur to me the, the basis of it anymore. It's basically just what my name is. That's just mm-hmm. what everybody's been calling me for so long. It doesn't even 
you know, I, I don't even think about it that way anymore. But okay. how, how did your how did your A and M classmates feel about it? Yeah, most they, of them thought it was pretty funny. shit over it, but, or you know, no? Yeah, I'm sure I, they oh, did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's an endless <laughs> stream of that. You know, any any minor, you know, we're generally a group of people that really likes to give it, give each other a hard time. So any any little in you can get, you yeah. have a pretty thick skin in this business, and and I, we we enjoy giving each other a hard time. Yeah, for 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 anybody listening who doesn't know, uh, UT uh, University of Texas. I'm sorry, and I and I know Travis. Forgive me. Yeah. I should have said. <laughs> TU for Texas T-U. University. Yeah, T-U, period, T-U and Texas A&M are one of the longest running, hardest nosed uh, university. Uh, what, what's the word? We're, we're right. not, yeah, you're a rivalry, rivalry. In, yeah. in the history of universities, and and so for for I think I think uh, I think the A&M fight song mentions Texas University more often than it mentions A&M. I mean, it's, it does. Yeah, it's yeah. it's insane. So so for for him to be walking around campus, I don't know if you ever if you had your call sign yet on campus, but for him to be yeah. walking around <laughs> the A and M community being called Bevo, it's he definitely took some shit for that for sure. Right. I took a little bit, but yeah. after you know after a while, after a while, I, sure, I, it sure. didn't bother me. And I had my name on a couple of airplanes, and it said you know Captain Patterson Bevo underneath it. Didn't um, it just it I'm, just became my name. Yeah, but I'm sure that's how it is with all all call signs, all good ones. Oh right? yeah, you got to take yeah, some shit when you get it. Yeah. That's the deal. Yeah. that's part of it. I, I know some guys. Who I would imagine some, gotten some pretty good ones. You know, if you do something stupid and somebody notices, you're going to get a call sign for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at least at least you didn't get it that way. That's I guess that's, that's true. That's, that's true. I did plenty thing. of stupid things. I think I just got away with them. I would imagine that's how a lot of call signs that are memorable and have good stories or, you know, it's, it's kind of the whole basis of the call sign in a way, right? Uh, you don't, Oh yeah. You don't yeah, have absolutely. oily hair and they call you slick and then that's it. You always have a good story to what your, what your call yeah. sign is. Yeah. Usually if you don't have a good story, it's going to end up being something like your initials or, you know, a bastardization <laughs> of your last name or something like that. Uh, okay. yeah. um, which is, you know, and I know a lot of guys who have call signs that no one calls them by their call sign because they just have a nickname that everybody, you know, it just kind of depends on, on where you are. And, you know, we have these very elaborate, uh, call them kangaroo courts where you give people their call signs and they can very quickly devolve into a mob mentality of, <laughs> lots of beer drinking and screaming and yelling and you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. So, so you, you talked about a uh, and if you did not join the Marines, uh, what, what, what do you think you would be doing? What would, what was your dream job? You know, I, I don't know. Um, cause I never had one. Really never had a plan. Uh, never had a plan that, B. You know, yeah. if I, when I, when I enlisted, I wanted to be a pilot. And then, you know, when I was getting ready to graduate from A&M, I, you know, I knew I had to go to OC, officer candidate school I wanted to get an air contract because you, 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 if you go into the Marine Corps as an officer, at least when I did it, and I'm pretty sure it's still the same, you have three options. You can go in as a ground contract, an air contract, or a lawyer. Um, and I didn't want to be a lawyer. Uh, I wanted to get an air contract, um, but I decided that I wanted to go get a commission in the Marine Corps more than I wanted to be a pilot. So one way or the other, I was going to go to OCS and I wanted to be a Marine officer. And I think that's that's where, you know, I think that's a a part of the difference in between Marine aviators and the other services. You know, most of us went Marine because we wanted to be a Marine officer first. So I figured if I didn't get a, if I didn't get a slot in flight school because, you know, my eyes weren't good enough or I failed the the aviation aptitude test, then I wouldn't go to TBS to go to the basic school. 
uh, and I would try and be an infantry officer or an artillery officer or something. I would see where that took me. Um, okay. That was kind of my backup plan. Okay. Not much of a backup plan, but that was it. <laughs> now, when I was in the when I was in the service before I got out, um, I was involved with officer training. I forget what they they called it. It was kind of like I was behind the scenes in of boot camp. Uh, like mm-hmm. a, we were just supporting the officer training, and you mentioned the OCS is yeah. How did how does that differ from like the regular boot camp that you would go go through, or does it? Different. So in the Marine Corps, it, it does differ. It differs pretty pretty drastically, actually. I mean, in, you know, when you, I, I went to both, and I can say that boot camp was much more mentally challenging, and OCS was much more physically challenging. But that's a large part because when I went to boot camp, I was seventeen years old. When uh-huh. I went to OCS, I was twenty three. Okay. There's there's a difference. You know, you go to you go to boot camp, and you are completely, you know, the the, the goal is to break you down to the bare bones and build you back up a Marine. You go to officer candidate school, the, the idea behind the school is to determine whether or not you can become an officer. So it's much more of a, not an attempt to kick you out, but it's a much more difficult process that is, I think, and this is my opinion, I, I wouldn't put this in a Marine Corps publication, but it, it's much more of a process designed to weed out those people who are not going to be able to do it. Whereas right. boot camp is designed to make you a Marine. Is, you know, you go to OCS and you don't really have a contract yet. You're not commissioned yet. You're not, you know, you're you're a candidate. You're not a second lieutenant. When you go to boot camp, you're in the Marine Corps. You're just in training. Right. Um, oh, I so I think that it is the largest difference. And, you know, that when you went to OCS, you were expected to be a certain level of physical fitness. Um, whereas in boot camp, yes, you're, you have to pass an inventory physical exam. But, you know, I mean, you're, you're not, you're, you start a little more crawl, walk, run, whereas in boot, whereas in OCS, you hit the ground running pretty hard almost immediately. Okay. Okay. Cool. There are other differences, you know. I mean, there was more, a little more academics at, at OCS, but mainly that's because everybody was a, either a college graduate or, or almost a college graduate, where most of the guys that go to boot camp are 17 years old, fresh out of high school. You know, it's just a, a difference between training a 17-year-old and a 23- or 24-year-old. Right. So after boot camp, did you go through like an AIT, an advanced individual training? I did, yeah. So I went to boot camp, uh, and I, I joined the Marine Reserve. There's a reserve oh, battalion okay. in Houston. Um, okay. And so I, you go to boot camp, and I was, I was what at the time was called a 180-day reservist. So you went on active duty for six months, and the idea was you went on active duty for six months, you came home and went to college. And so that's what I did. I went, on, I went to boot camp, and then right after boot camp, the Marine Corps has, if you enlist, they have what's called Marine Combat Training. So everyone who is not an infantry Marine goes to this training because you know, the Marine Corps' motto, and it still holds true, is that every Marine is a rifleman, regardless of what your job is, whether you're an administrator or a, you know, a, um, a logistics Marine, you, you are still, at the end of the day, uh, required to be a rifleman. Right. So you go to that training, and then when that training is complete, you go to your specific school. And I was a radio operator. I was a field radio operator, and that school is in 29 Palms, California. I went there and uh, right after boot camp or right after MCT, and then uh, came home after that. Wow, I was a combat signaler, Fort Gordon, Georgia. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Thirty-one kilo, and then a thirty-one Victor or Mike. I don't know. It was a radio repair after that. I think I, I had uh, it was a field radio operator at the time. We had the PRC seventy-seven, this yes. radio with knobs yep. on top. Yeah. George and I were talking about those one day. Yeah. <laughs> Things. 
Things have changed just a little bit. Just today. a little. If you were to oh, put bad. me Art. in a radio room today, I wouldn't have any idea what any of that stuff yeah. is. RT five two fours and four. George, George, did you yeah. serve as well? I'm sorry to interrupt, George. Did you did you, did you serve in the military as well? No, I joined the Marine Corps back in '82, and um, I was a little wild back then. I had <laughs> I had uh, just graduated from high school and inherited some money, and and um, I just. I just didn't conform, and I wished I wished I'd stayed in. Later on, to join the army, they found out I'd been in the Marine Corps, and they kicked me to the side. So, but I've always been a patriot, loved my country. My dad, he was a World War II Navy veteran, um, wounded, and um, what's bad is he he was the cook on the ship, and he was the only guy during their tour of duty that uh, got injured. Mm. Kind of sounds like you know bad cooking doesn't he? yeah <laughs> <laughs> but now I've, I've always just you know i was my dad was kind of a historian and he wrote some yeah. but he just you know taught us right. kids, me and my two sisters you know about american history and uh um yeah i've always fascinated with military vehicles and aircraft mm, so, sorry to interrupt i just I've, I've heard heard you on the show for so long how you the, the way you talk about our military, and, and so I, I, I thought I would clarify. I, I, I didn't actually know if you had served or not. No, no. I didn't mean yeah, to. I love our military, I tell you. Yeah, I had, to, I, had mute uh-huh. her. I had to I had to walk off for a second. So aside from a radio operating MOS, that's probably where our similarities stop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do, do we want to move on to a few other questions about flight school? Andy or sure yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah yeah so uh it says 2000 2002 you were in flight school I Um, was so I I uh oh sorry go ahead go ahead well I was just gonna say tell us a little bit about that and then I want to get into uh these age ones yeah so I went to um I I I ended up getting my air contract and so so all, all marines all Marine officers go to the basic school and the, you know, the idea behind that is you learn at the end of the basic school, you're technically qualified to, to lead an infantry platoon. Although if infantry officers still go to infantry officer school and when everybody else graduates, they all go to their schools. So I went to Pensacola for flight school. And um, at the time it was kind of a slow process. I was in Pensacola for about six months doing not much of anything before I started the ground, the ground school. Mm-hmm. So I started the ground school uh, and this was late summer, early summer of 2001. And then um, when I finished, it was a six-week, you know, aviation indoctrination is what they called it. And it's basically some rudimentary aerodynamics, um, some systems, engines, things like that. We had to do a lot of the aviation physiology. Like we mm-hmm. had to do the swim qual where they, you know, they put you in a big tube and they drop it in the water and flip it upside down and you have to swim out and, um, a lot of the other survival training, you know, uh, you don't really, you don't parachute, but you do, uh, actually, uh, you, you have to learn how to do a parachute landing. And so they basically take you, you know, on the other side of the Alabama border, you go to this big field and you get in the back of a pickup truck and you basically go parasailing on the back of a pickup truck. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's pretty to get, get you up and then just stop and you got to land. Get you up and stop and then it come, you bring you come right down and then you land. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's, they're still that doing That sounds like fun to me. It was yeah. fun, actually. Um, so that's what, you know, the, the aviation indoctrination was. It was about three and a half weeks of academics and three and a half weeks of 
swimming, survival stuff, things like that. Um, yeah. And then when that was over, I went to Corpus Christi, Texas, um, to check into what's called primary flight training. So primary okay. flight training for the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard um, is all done by the Navy. So, you know, all oh. Coast Guard pilots, Navy pilots and Marine pilots, we all go to the same flight school with some minor exceptions. You know, there's an exchange tour with the Air Force, uh, but for the most part, everybody does Navy. Uh, and so that was here in Corpus Christi, actually where I am now. Um, and it was with the T-34B. So, you, you know, you get down here and you go through, it was about 80 hours of flight time. If I remember correctly. Um, and at the conclusion of that, you know, everything you do is graded. Um, and it, it's very competitive. Uh, it is a competitive process. We're all, um, you know, competing against each other. Um, and, and you're graded on everything you do. And at the end of that, uh, oh, sorry, it's our, our <laughs> dog. Sorry. No worries. Uh, no worries. Sounds like a big dog. <laughs> there are two of them. Yeah. And anytime somebody walks by, I got to let them know that we're home. But, uh, Good dog. Um, so you go through that, and you do this competitive process, and you're kind of racked and stacked at the end of it. And if you're a Marine at the time in 2001, um, which w- when I went there, so actually on a little aside, my first, the first beginning of the syllabus was in simulators, in Union Simulator. And I did mm-hmm. my first simulator, and I came out of the sim, and I'll never forget it. September 11th, I come out of the sim, and a buddy of mine who just was in after me said, hey, somebody just flew a plane into the World Trade Center. Uh, oh, that's wow. that's yeah. when I was oh, in high wow. school, and I got home uh, just in time for my wife and I, newlyweds. About we'd been married maybe three weeks to oh, watch boy. the rest of it on TV that day. Wow, man! Um, so, but back to the flight school itself, and you, you go through primary, and then if you're a Marine, in 2001 you had three choices: it was jets, props, basically just C-130s mm-hmm. or helicopters. Right. And it's competitive, so generally speaking, the number one guy in the class is going to get what he wants. And there is a cutoff score for jets. You had to have a certain grade to qualify to be a jet pilot. Um, and of the 12 guys that I finished with, I think eight of us qualified for jets. The top guy wanted jets, but at the time, you know, all of that is caveated on what the Marine Corps needs. Right, and the Marine Corps needs helicopter pilots. So 11 helo guys and one C-130 guy, um, which, you know, I think at the time – Three quarters, I think three quarters or so of all marine aviators are helicopter pilots just because we have a lot more of them than anything else. Yeah, yeah uh, makes sense. And so we did that. And then once you, once you select, there's a little bit more flying you do in a T-34. And then if you're a helo guy, you go to Pensacola. And then you do the helicopter uh, training in Pensacola, Florida. So right. we moved to Pensacola probably in January of 2002. And I started flying helicopters. Um, and that, you know... That sold us is a lot of fun. It's a, at the time was a TH fifty seven. It's a Bell Bell Jet Ranger. Basically, mm-hmm. you're, you know, if you look at a news helicopter or something like that, that's right, very similar right, to right. what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you go through that syllabus, which took about eight months. And then it's again, it's competitive. You're graded on everything you do. You're graded on the academics. You're graded on the flight portion, and you're stacked up against the rest of the Marines in the class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, of, when you're done with the syllabus, you get your wings, big ceremony, and you have a selection. Uh, and the way they did our selection, it was different every week, but the instructor pilots in the helicopter squadron had an instructor-only ready room. So we all lined up in our class order. So I was number two out of 10 or 11, I think. So the number one guy was in front of me and everybody else down the line lined. We all lined up outside the door. And the first, the number one guy walked in, and on the whiteboard, I had written everything that was available that week. So he walked mm-hmm. up to the whiteboard, erased what he wanted, 
I walked in, I raced what I wanted. And lucky for me, I wanted to fly Cobras. So did um, my buddy, who was the number one guy. He wanted to fly Cobras too. Uh, there were two slots, one for the East Coast and one for the West Coast. He, was, he wanted to go to the East Coast and I wanted to go to the West Coast. So it just worked out. Uh, wow. It worked, yeah, worked yeah, out yeah. great I for did. me. Like I walked in and it said AH1 Whiskey's West up there and I erased it and that was it. Did, did you grow up with that guy? I think I remember meeting him. You might have. He, at the wedding. Yeah, he, uh, he may have been at the wedding. Um, or you went to A&M with him or something. No. Uh, I, that, I, never I mind. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, it's okay. There, there was a, another guy there. I, mean, I actually dragged a bunch of Marines that I went to flight school with to come up to our wedding and do uh, the sword detail there at the end of it. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. But, so that's kind of the, the breakdown of how Naval Flight School goes. But I, I will say it. It's very difficult um, in that, you know, I mean, it, I studied more in flight school than I ever did in college. My oh, yeah. college GPA oh. is an testament to that. Um, <laughs> it was well, that's what you really wanted, right? You, yeah. You get in, I mean, you I, get in there and you know you better get after it. And, you know, it was very challenging, um, but it was, I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal experience. Really challenging, a lot of hard work, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, you do the hard work and you see the payoff. If you work yeah. hard, you study hard, you see the payoff. Like you I feel, just feel yourself becoming competent. Yeah, you do. And yeah. you know, the other thing I, I, like not everybody has the mental, not mental is not the right word, but the stick and rudder capacity to successfully fly an airplane right mm-hmm. off the bat. Some guys pick it up like that. No problem. Yep. Other guys, it takes longer. And the one thing I, I learned and I kind of took this with me because I've instructed in other capacities in helicopters for a while is that, you know, as a student, if you put in the effort, if you study hard and you come prepared, your instructor will go, will bend over backwards if you're having trouble to help. You know, you'll get the extra flight time if you need it. You'll get the extra instruction if you need it. But if you show up and you don't put the effort in on the ground, then you're probably not going to, you're probably not going to finish flight school. Yeah. It's, I'd say it's 90% how much, work and effort you put into it because not everybody's yeah. Chuck Yeager right off the bat you know some so, guys take the, some guys take longer you know just, yeah. just the way it is, is the, but if you put in the work you'll get there this yeah. is the difference between practice and rehearsal right exactly. never never yeah. ever practice and rehearsal it's rude to the yeah. other guys yeah yeah right. know your know your music when you show up yeah it's that attitude um but yeah so I mean and, and uh so, go ahead yeah uh well when you first started the flight school did you have any experience as a pilot or oh, yeah. I had a very do, little, do a lot of the guys yeah. in there so are they already the time, you know private pilots or whatever or no at the you? time very very few at the time there were very few guys that had any more yeah. than like we had the other one or two guys that had been flying since they were little kids and you know they they obviously at the very beginning you can tell a difference you could, I mean, from the guy who'd never flown an airplane before, the guy who had 100 hours of assessment, there's obviously yeah, a big sure, difference. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, at the time, the Marine Corps, so I finished OCS the summer before my last year of college. The Marine Corps had this program where if you were a flight contract, they would pay for 20 hours of private flight instruction, your lab before you got commissioned and before you went to flight school. So I, I made about 18 of it. So I had about 18 hours in Cessnas when <laughs> I started uh, flight school. The, now the Marine Corps has, and I think it's all naval aviation, has a very similar program, except the difference is that at the time, that program was completely voluntary. This one is mandatory. I can't remember what it's called. 
but you are required to go to a civilian flight school and the Marine Corps picks them. You know, they, they pick them, they pay for them. These, they have contracts. You're required to go. And I, I'm not sure, I don't remember what the requirement to complete the program is, but it, it can keep you from going to flight school. So it's a, right. it's a lot different these days. Most yeah. guys going to flight school nowadays have at least soloed an airplane before. Right. Sure. Cool. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, that brings us kind of to, you talked about, um, being able to choose the the AH one Super Cobra, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. For folks like me that aren't super familiar with that aircraft, can you give us like a, a quick breakdown, a little bit of sure. it? Sure, yeah. So the AH one Whiskey is the attack helicopter. You know the the original design. If just I won't go too far into the history. I don't want to bore anybody, but. You know, no, the, the no, human, nobody on this show will be bored. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, hanging, I'm hanging on every word. <laughs> if people are real smart on the history of Bell Helicopter. They're probably going to call me out on not being completely uh, accurate here, but I'll do my best. So the the original Bell Huey built in the late 50s, I think, early 60s for Vietnam. You know, large. There, there were a lot of them built. Mm-hmm. And yeah. The Cobra was basically they decided they wanted a dedicated attack helicopter and basically cut a Huey in half made it a tandem seat, dual piloted attack helicopter. Sole purpose, you know, rockets and guns at the time. Um, and that was, I don't remember what the first model was, um, but it, bet, that's where I it started. Jordan so, yeah, you might. I think it, I can't remember. I know it was a single engine. The first model was a single engine. The first couple of models were single engines. Oh, um, yeah. They were single engine up through, you know, the, the square canopy Cobra. Um, the yeah. one, like, one I'm building, it's a, um, it's actually an AH1W, but it's the early, early, early single engine. Okay. AH1W, okay. but yeah, I know which one you're talking about. It had the real pointed nose and it had a rounded it canopy, you know, where you had good visibility, but I can't, but I've sat in one of them you, before. And you're I talking about the, you're talking about the, the Huey Cobra. The H1G, I think. That was the original. Yeah, you know, might the be, original. The, the Huey Cobra was the original one. They're yeah, tiny. Yeah. Uh, and then it went through a couple of different modifications. There was a Sierra model, a Juliet. You know, the Mercor flew most of them at one point or another. Uh, but we were very specific. The Marine Corps specifically wanted a dual-engine model because, obviously, we fly on and off of ships a lot. And it's definitely nice to have a second engine when you're flying over the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of the genesis of the, the Cobra, but the, the age one whiskey model that I flew, uh, most of them were built in the early nineties, uh, late eighties, early nineties. I think some of them may have been in desert storm. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but by the time I started flying them in 2003, it was the age one whiskey. It was a dual piloted attack helicopter and we could carry uh, 2.75 inch rockets. It has a 20 millimeter cannon under the nose. Uh, and it also, you know, tow missiles, which is a tow stands for, I think, tube launched optically wire guided track missile. Um, so it was a, basically a wire guided missile you could carry. Mm. And then we started carrying Hellfires as well, which is the laser guided variant, which they still use today. Uh, the Marine, the, the Cobra no longer flies with tows, but we fly with Hellfire still. Uh, and that was the whiskey. That was the H1 whiskey. Um, you know, you could, it was a pretty, very capable, very, I mean, almost tailor-made for the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, it, it go about 120, 130 knots or so, got two hours worth of gas on it. Uh, it had a, a sensor, you know, it had a, a FLIR, a forward-looking infrared sensor, and a, basically an optical 
you know, a, a, we call it the DVO direct view optics, basically a daytime video camera mm-hmm. uh, is when that's how you, you know, you, you fire the gun with that or launch the, the mis- you know, control the, the missiles and, and the laser with, with that sensor. Right. Um, two pilots always, uh, it is technically a single pilot aircraft, so you can fly it single piloted, but you couldn't really, you couldn't really fight it single piloted, so to speak. Right. Um, generally, you know, the, the pilot in command was in the back seat, but usually whoever the guy, whoever the pilot in command was could sit wherever he wanted, sit in the front seat, sit in the back seat. Some okay. guys really like the front seat because you can see a lot better in the front. Mm-hmm. Some guys really like the back seat because it was much easier to fly from the back seat. Oh, okay. Um, why why you, was that? So the, the um, if you've ever seen the front cockpit of one, mm-hmm. the yeah. controls are side mounted and they're very small. Okay. Um, the controls in the back seat are you know standard center mounted center mounted cyclic and the side mounted collective. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Know, mm-hmm. Every one inch of movement in the front seat accounted to four inches in the back. So it was just, a, okay. it was a lot more oh, wow. okay. taxing to fly it from the front right. seat, but right. you could see a lot better from the front okay. seat. Like if you're yeah. landing on the boat at night, you almost always want to do it from the front seat because it's very, mm. you can't see over the pilot's head in the front. And, right. you know, right. when you were at, when you were at cruise speed, the aircraft would fly about nine degrees nose down. So the guy in the back seat could see, but mm. when you're coming into land, your nose up. And you're already you've already got something in front of you. You just it's very difficult to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I didn't know the watch guys land on the boat. I would kick the nose out so they could see. You rely on on communication from your front seat pilot when you're doing that for him to. Yeah, so there's a lot of crew coordination. Um, you know, if you're if you're landing in the we do it. We landed at the back seat at night. A lot of crew coordination going to talk you on to uh, the spot and things like that. And there's also a there's a a landing signalman on the ship with lighted wands that kind of yeah. brings you in. So. Sure. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, I didn't realize the controls were different front seat to back they seat. They were. Like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were, they were different. Um, cause the, the front seater, if you, if you look up a picture of the H1 whiskey front seat, you'll see this very large, we called it the bucket. It was this mm-hmm. big sight system that stuck up in your face and mm-hmm. it had two little, you know, things that would go around, you'd, you'd duck your head inside of it and look in the, in the sensor. So you couldn't right. really put controls in the middle because there right. was no right. room for them. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm so looking at that picture. Was, Holy yeah, crap. It's, it's very, that looks it's very really strange. Front seat. Yeah. Very cramped front seat. Um, looks like yeah, an alien I, spaceship. Yeah. With that bucket there. Yeah. That's what we call it. We call it the bucket. Yeah. The guy in the front seat would spend a lot of time head down with his, with his face in the bucket. Yeah. Wow. Um, something you mentioned earlier in the, and tr- doing the flight training and stuff was, mm-hmm. was drown proofing. What is that yeah. exactly? So, um, there's, you know, it, it's, uh, naval aviation and, you know, there's a, a very stringent, difficult, um, water survival thing that you have to go through. And, you know, the, I mean, of that six-week aviation in-dock course, I think swimming was almost two full weeks of it. Oh, wow. Um, we, we had to do a mile open water. Not a, it was a mile swim in the water, in a pool, I think. Uh, and you had to do, we call it the Gila Dunker. Um, so if you if you Google Gila Dunker, you'll, you'll see this very large tubular-looking thing that's got a bunch of seats in it that's modeled to look like the inside of a helicopter. And it's on this okay. big hydraulic system. Mm-hmm. And everybody gets in it and they drop it in the water and flip it over. 
and you know they you're you're trained you wait till all violent motions stop and you have to kind of work your way out of it and uh, um, that's one of the kind of what's one of the events you had to do another one was um if they put you in a parachute harness and they have a large mechanical arm above the pool that drags you up and down the pool in the parachute harness and you have to mm. you know work your way out of it while you're being dragged up and down the pool right right um wow. in pensacola you actually swim out into pensacola bay and they bring a helicopter in to hoist you up um through as you, as you go through the training you gotta go use just some life raft training because the Cobra didn't have it because there's no room for it. But any multi-place, i.e. multi-crew aircraft that flew out over water, naval aviation regulation required it had a life raft in it. Right, um, sure. And so we had, Cobra didn't have that. We had, you know, inflatable lobes mm-hmm. um, that if you land in the water, you pull your handles and they automatically inflate. So my, my dad has often told me, uh, actually sort of a surprising number of times, that you're the calmest person he's ever met. He, he told me, for, the, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Travis, this is it's, it's not really an exaggeration. I, I've just never seen the guy jump or twitch or anything, not, not, that, yeah. it's, not that it's yeah. good or bad, just calm, very, very calm. My, my dad once said that if, if a hand grenade went off in a room, Travis would probably turn around and go, I think that was a hand grenade, you know, like it's just, <laughs> it's just calm. So I would imagine that the, that the dunker was probably not like a, what was it, Did you find that to be a, like a very intense experience or was it no big I, deal? You know, or how, how do people do with that? It varied. So I, I'm fortunate in that I, I was a swimmer growing up. I was a competitive swimmer all the way through. I'm very, very comfortable in the water, yeah, uh, sure. which helped. And you could, mm-hmm. you could tell like if you're not comfortable in the water, yeah, that is panic. A, yeah. It can be a traumatic experience. And there there are guys that don't get through flight school just because of the swimming. Um, you know, it, it, huh. it can be panic-inducing because you, you have to do it. We have You still have to do it every four years. In fact, I just did it. I just did my swim recall back in June. Because, uh, oh, wow. you, you know, you have to do it every four years. Um, but there, you know, you have to do it five times. And three of those five times, they give you little goggles that are blacked out. So you can't see. You have to wow. do it blind, simulating a night, you know. Right, sure. So, so what do you do, um, like follow, follow the bubbles kind of thing? or well, what how, do you, how do you find up? What they tell you to do is, you know, you wait till all violent motion stops. So you, you basically, you're buckled in, you grab a reference point, like the bottom of your chair or something along the wall, and you wait till all violent motion stopped, and then you release your harness. Because if you release your harness before the aircraft submerges or things are still tumbling around, you're, you're going to become a flying piece of junk in right, the back yeah. of a tumbling helicopter but if you wait till all violent motion is stopped grab your reference point and you slowly work your way out to the nearest exit and then swim up to the top and that's they, the navy does a very good job i think of training people for this mm-hmm. um you do it with the night blacked out goggles and on two of those rides you actually have what's called a heeds bottle i don't know what it stands for but we carry them anytime you fly over water it's a little basically um oxygen bottle gives you about two minutes worth of breathable air okay so it that does provide some some you know comfort. Yeah, you know, once sure. you got that thing in your mouth and you can breathe, you can take a minute, you know, wait for everything to settle down, and then work your way out. Yeah. You have to do it without it a couple times, but yeah, yeah, in case you drop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or it that, doesn't work. That, you know, that also sounds it. like fun to me. I know I'm I'm obnoxious <laughs> that way, but I, I hear this hear these descriptions of groundproofing in the Dunker, and, and uh, you know, pe- people like. Sw- treading water for a long time, bouncing up and down from the bottom of the pool with their hands side behind their backs. I'm like, I wonder if I can do that. Let me go try yeah. that. We Sounds do like have fun. to do a lot of water treading. You got to do a drown proofing where you, you know, you, you know, inflate what you got on you. Um, I, I do. Yeah. Like I, 
It's hard, hard to swim. It is hard to swim. I can see the headline now, Eric. Man that found dead in his pool. Well, yeah. I, 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 pool. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to. Yeah, I want to tell Eric if he wants to come visit Tennessee. I've got a river. I mean, I can find an old car. We can strap you in and throw it in the river. If you really want to try it out? Then we can bring my uh, my new coonhound up there so you can ha- help have him help you find my dead body a couple of days later. Well, I mean, you said it sounded like fun. I'll it does sound like fun. It really does. I think it sounds like awesome time. Yeah. Don't tempt me. My wife would help me. Hey, wife would think. Oh wow. <laughs> There is one more thing I want to ask about flight school. Sure. T- what What was it like the the very first time you hovered a helicopter for you? You're sitting on the tarmac. You pull up on the collective. You're hovering a helicopter. Did it? Was it just you did it so many times that the sim it was perfectly smooth, or was it like hilariously oh, no. hard, or oh, what was, happened? Uh, <laughs> it was uh, trying to think of the best way to describe it. Like I think that song where the guy talks about riding a bull, where you drive down the highway at seventy miles an hour and throw the steering wheel out the window. That, yeah. That's kind of what, like, I, it was not intuitive. It was not, uh, well, I'm, if I remember correctly, the way the instructors would teach you to do it is they would pull it up into a hover. Mm-hmm. And, then the, and then they would say, okay, why don't you take the cyclic, just the stick? Uh-huh. I've got everything else. I just want you to take the stick. And then, yeah. you, okay, now you have the cyclic and the collective. Uh-huh. You, get, you get comfortable with that. Okay, now you have the pedals. And your first thought is usually, wait a minute, there, there are pedals down there too. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you then you get the pedals, and so you end up doing that for a while before you and you know I, I before you get comfortable hovering. It takes a while. It takes it takes four or five flights, I think, before you really get comfortable. Oh, just but once four, you get right. it, yeah. It, once yeah. you get it, it is kind of like riding a bike. You right. can right. you know you pick it up and, and get a feel and, for it. You know, so so they don't. They don't sit you down and teach you all the known interactions. They just put your butt in a seat and, and let you feel it out. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you go through a ground school where you talk about the aerodynamics and the theory and, and yeah, how I mean, that the, works. The, and then you, the con- you do have a simulator syllabus, but the simulators are not, not the same. Yeah. They're not the same. Yeah, they're, they're not the same. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, is, the, it is a very much of a crawl, walk, run kind of evolution. Yeah, but yeah. like I said, once you figure it out, it's like riding a bike. I, I have heard that. I have heard people say, I know a guy who's a helicopter instructor, and he says, he says, if people want me to, I teach them all the control interactions because they're, I mean, mathematically they're known, right? If you're sitting on the, if you're sitting in neutral on the tarmac and you pull up on the collective, you're adding pitch, you're biting more air, yeah. you're also adding torque. So now you need to counteract yeah. for the torque. You, you counteract for the torque. Out. Now the fan is blowing a bunch of air to the side and the thing starts to slip sideways. So now you have to lean into the, into the, uh, you know, lean into the tail rotor. And now you have, these things, and of course, it's a loop. It comes back around and bites you again. And so we yeah. sit down and explain all this to people who really care about it, and then they go out and it makes absolutely no difference at all. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. I so would we imagine do the is, same thing. You you have to study it and explain it, and you draw it out before you ever get in the cockpit. And as soon as you pick up into the hover, it all it all just goes out the window. Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I That's the story I wanted to hear. All right, right. thank you. <laughs> I've got a friend that's a flight instructor, or he's retired, was a flight instructor with the army, and. He told me something that really surprised me. He says people really want to grab that that cyclic stick and hold on to it for dear life. And he said you really don't want to. You just want to kind of guide it. Yeah, it's- you really have to be very, very, and it all depends on the helicopter. But especially those smaller ones, you really have to be very gentle. Yeah, I don't think there's expo. <laughs> no, there's no there's no exponential in a real go. Do you know what exponential is, Travis? No. Or probably not. In the, when, when we fly, when we fly, our, I'll just very quickly. When we fly RC helicopters, the the controls can be very sensitive, and you see you see these guys that fly these 
real aggressive 3D flights, you need a lot of control authority. You have these 360 degree roll yeah. rates and per second roll rates and things like that. Yeah, well, you, when, when you're when you're trying to hover or land, you don't want that much sensitivity. So we we put a curve in the in this programmable transmitter so that it's it's more active near the edges and much less active near the middle. And there's yeah, it's there's the no, middle. Yeah, there's no such so thing in it, real life. Yeah. Does it does it is it based on a like a like a speed? thing or a, or a, like how does it know to go it's, in that what you call it rc yeah yeah remote radio control rc stands for okay. radio control but so you you have when you're flying the the transmitter is generally just two sticks there's a bunch of switches for ancillary functions but you know on your left stick you'll have uh collective up and down and rudder left and right and then on your right stick is your cyclic so uh if your sticks are, are neutral in the middle and then 100% input is all the way to the edge. If you were to go halfway out with no with no exponential, then that would be 50% of the control throw. But the way it works okay. is is halfway out maybe is 25%. And then if you want a lot of aggressive movement, you go all the way out and it goes oh, climbs. Okay. So it's so it's it based climbs. on control positioning. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Control yeah. position. Okay. Yeah. I should have just said that. <laughs> <laughs> that was or, way more efficient. Or it's just a, a sloppy stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So and Travis said something that intrigued me about full scale uh, helicopters. The smaller ones are a little more squirrely. It's the same in RC. It's so true with RC too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so it's funny. Very true. Very yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Bigger, very, more stable. Very, very true. Yeah. I have a, a hilarious pile of crashes in my heli room over here. That testament to that statement. <laughs> All right. So I don't know where we want to jump to, but I know personally I'm interested in uh, your experience uh, in uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. If you can talk about that, that, that would be great. I'm not sure what everybody yeah. else, where we're at in the list right. here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so a little background. When, when I got to... The fleet is what we call it. You know, you go through training for three years and you finally get to the fleet. And the Marine, it's the fleet Marine Force where you're actually, you know, you're deploying and you're doing all those things. Um, so my, my, my first deployment was Okinawa in 2003. So I checked into a squadron in May of 2003 when they had just come back from OIF-1, like the initial, you know, 2003 invasion of Iraq. So it was pretty overwhelming being a, you know, wide-eyed first lieutenant checking into a squadron full of guys who just gotten back from the full the first war in 12 oh, years. Geez, I'm sure. Um, right. Yeah. It was a little, a little intimidating, but you know, th those guys were phenomenally professional and, and really cared about training you to make, make sure you knew how to do your job. You know I mean? Cause what, even once you finish the training squadron, there is still so much to learn before you're even capable to sign for an aircraft. And you know, these guys are in your squadron and it's important to them that you, you know, you don't get them killed. Right. Um, so they, and these they instructors, really, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, like my friend, these instructors, they get so invested in their, in their, their really good students, you know, the ones that make it through and that, I mean, they just become family. I mean, my they, buddy, yeah. he, uh, it's just, it's amazing the relationship, the bond that they have, you know, from then on, they're, yeah. in, they're making sure that they, you know, get to come back home. Yeah, and it, it really and it's 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 important to develop that because uh, you guys are you're going to deploy with these people and you're going to spend a long time with them. Mm -hmm. um, so I went I went there and I came home and home for a little while and um, you know the the Marine Corps deploys on kind of a cyclical rotation. 
And so our squadron's rotation was coming up, and uh, we were going to basically send out a Marine Expeditionary Unit detachment. Um, and the other squadrons on our flight line were basically doing rotations to Iraq. So we were all kind of disappointed. You know, we want, everybody wants to go to Iraq. We want to go to Iraq. And, um, so uh, in 2004, I got to, I went on a new debt, which was Marine Expeditionary Unit is a a, uh, it's hard to, it's not hard to describe. It's by the way the Marine Corps deploys. The Marine Corps deploys is what we call a MAGTAF, a Marine Air Ground Task Force. So you had an aviation squadron, an infantry battalion, and then a logistics unit with a headquarters. And we all deploy together. You spend six months working together. You know, at, in Southern California, you do all these training events together. The whole kind of unit works together very hard for six months. And then you're on a ship and you deploy. So we got on the ship, um, in, I want to say December of 2004. I think sounds about right. Um, and we didn't know where we were going. You know, it, it, the rumors were pretty wild. And, you know, late 04, it was, oh, you're going to go to Afghanistan. Oh, you're going to go to Iraq. Oh, you're not going to do anything, but you're going to float around the Persian Gulf and do exercises with foreign militaries. Um, we ended up going to Iraq for only about six weeks. Um, and it was a, we were sit there as kind of a stop get measure while two units in the army were turning over. And this was spring of 04 before you know, Phantom Fury and the other very intense stuff was later on that year. So there really wasn't a lot going on. We did a lot of convoy escort, um, you know, escorting convoys of Marines all over theater. That was probably the most dangerous thing that, I mean, those guys uh-huh. in those convoys, you just, you just never knew. You know, right, it, right. IEDs could be all over the place. And that was right. probably the more dangerous job at the time. Um, and like I said, this was before Phantom Fury, um, but yeah, I mean, we basically, we were there for about six weeks. We did uh, a lot of convoy escort. We did, we would go out, we were stationed at uh, Altacottam, um, and we would go out, we put a smaller debt out at various other fobs around the country and to support specific raids that some, some Marines were doing. I and mean, it was, it was kind of a confusing time, um, because you know, everything was sort of in flux, but there really wasn't a lot going on. I mean, I think, in, and that was in Al-Anbar in, in early 04, there was a lot going on, but um, actually, no, I'm sorry. This was after Phantom Fury. My dates are getting mixed up. Phantom Fury had already happened, so Fallujah and places like that, pacified is not the right word, but they were pretty close. And that was my first deployment to Iraq. It was pretty, behind's not the right word, but, uh, you know, we just, we flew a lot. We did a lot of, we're overhead, so nobody's going to shoot at the guys in the convoy. That right. was you know, that, that was a large part of what we did was a deterrent at the time because right. no, nobody ever really shot at convoys when there were Cobras overhead. Right. So it yeah. sounds like it's just vaguely related to uh, Overwatch or something. It is. Yeah. And, and that's and we did a lot of that. We spent hours and hours and hours overhead, convoys overhead, Marines going into small towns and things like that. That was my first deployment to Iraq. My second one was a little different. That was in 2007. It was the summer of the surge. Um, and I was, again, on a, on a MUDET. Um, at this time, it was a little different. The first one, I was a co-pilot. The second one, I was a flight leader. Um, I was a section lead instructor pilot and the senior, senior Cobra guy on, on our detachment. Um, and we spent, I want to say, five months in Al-Qaim. remember correctly, is AL space Q-A-I-M. It was a very small forward operating base right on the Syrian border, kind of where the Euphrates River hits the Syrian border. Oh, wow. Um, 
and that was a lot more interesting. You know, there, there was more to do. Uh, we, we, again, we did a lot of convoy escort because mainly the way we got supplied out in that little fob was convoys. So that, that's our mail. We're going to escort that convoy. <laughs> Make sure Man, cra- cradle of civilization, right. huh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it was a pretty, I mean, it's, it's an interesting place, you know, all up and down the, we called it the Werve, the Western Euphrates River Valley. Um, we, we did a lot of convoy escort. We did a lot of raids. Um, we had a, we supported three different companies. We supported an infantry company that was with us at Alcon. And we supported a company of uh, LAR, Light Armored Reconnaissance. Basically, uh, um, they were four-wheeled, very light armored vehicles, like not a not an Amtrak, not a not a Bradley or anything. It was a specific Marine LAR. I, can't remember, I think it had like a 25 millimeter cannon on it. I don't remember how many Marines it carried, but they were. Um, I can't remember the name of the FOB, but they were about 20 miles to our east. And we so we were supporting them. So that was all we did. We flew. We had we basically worked. For about five months, we did 12 on, 12 off, and I was on the night shift, so I'd come in at 11.30, and we'd be on until noon the next day, and then we'd be relieved by our other guys. Um, and in that time, we had specific things that we were tasked to do, like we would occasionally be, we called it being fragged, fragged to do a convoy escort or something like that, but we were always on tap for troops in contact and Kazakh escort. So if any time a troops in contact happened, it would go out all over the AO, and if they were within our area of responsibility, we'd be the ones that launch. You know, we got several of them, you know, troops and kind of, you know, and, and it, they were all, sometimes it was a fight, other times it was an uh, um, but we always launched. We were usually airborne within two and a half minutes or so, and given wow. the small AO that we had, we were usually overhead within about 12 to 15 minutes, um, just depending on how far we had to get within that area. Uh the other thing we were responsible for was Kazavak escort. So anytime a Marine or any friendly uh, Iraqi army, anybody that was injured in RAO, at the base we were at, we had three Army 60s. They were a National Guard unit from Louisiana, if I remember correctly. Um, and they were they were dust off. That was their call sign. It was a green Army 60 with a red cross on the side. And anytime they got launched to go to go do a Kazavak, we, we would escort them on a Cobra because we were... If you remember, and I don't know if anybody else remembers this, but there were black zones, green zones, and I think yellow zones in Iraq, and they were specific to aviation. So if you were in the black zone, you could not fly as a single ship. You you were not you couldn't fly as a single helicopter. And if you were a non-combatant helicopter, I don't that may not be the right word, but if you were a Kazavak helicopter, you had to fly with an armed escort. And that was one of the things we did. We did a lot of those. We did more of those than anything else. And it was it was anything from again an IED, or I mean somebody had appendicitis for one of them. You know, I mean any anything right, right. like. And, and obviously, mm. there were combat injuries too. Um, so anytime one of our responsibilities, and we took it very seriously, was if somebody was injured, you know, they're, they're, we wanted to get them to want to get them out as quickly as we could. And those army guys were very good at it. We we, we got very good at it. I mean they they would. Uh, they take it very seriously. It's a fellow Marine or a fellow soldier that we were going to get out of there as quick as we could. Absolutely. So you can, you can jump in one of those Cobras, those Super Cobras, and get it in the air within two minutes, you said? We could, yeah. So we, wow. we had, you know, there's a long checklist. There's the, you know, when you're, when you're the first time you fly the thing when you're a student at the training command, it probably takes you 10 to 15 minutes to get it started and taxi out. Sure. But once you, we, we, I mean, we practiced, we trained, we drilled. 
But we also had what we call the cocking checklist. So you basically, it's like cocking a gun. You would go out there and cock the aircraft. Uh, every, every day when you came on shift, you would go, the, you, the outgoing crew and the ongoing crew would go out to your helicopter. They would get their gear out. You would put your gear in. I would, as the pilot in command, I sat in the back. I would sit in the back, make sure all the switches were in the right place. And you get to the point where all you had to do was run out to the aircraft, throw the battery on, and hit the starter. And that was it. Damn. And it took, and right. you know, we had a, a very dedicated ground crew. I remember very clearly the first time I launched on a tick, the, uh, as I'm jumping in the back, the plane captain is standing on the ammo bay door, helping me strap into the aircraft while I'm starting the plane. Um, that just, we all were kind of, we had practiced what we needed to do and we just, we could get it down to a very quick process. Well, you said, you said started the, starting the plane. Uh, did I lose you mm-hmm. somewhere? It was the helicopter, uh, right? We call it the, yeah, we call oh, okay, it the okay, okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. okay. Of course you do. We, we actually very rarely ever call it a chopper. At least, yeah. you know, I don't <laughs> usually call yeah. it the aircraft more often than not. Yeah. So, so you basically have a, like a, um, you, you do most of your checklist before you walk away from the airplane so that it's ready to you go. You do. Yeah. You make sure you, that it's ready. To and, you, and because nobody else has touched it, you know what state you left it in. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And we that makes had, sense actually. We had four of them there and our daily requirement was for three. So we could always have one as a backup and, you know, you'd, you'd have, obviously they have to be maintained. You know, the Marines have to work on them. We have to do turnaround inspections on them. So you would occasionally on one shift, the maintenance guys would call us like, hey, we got to swap you from this aircraft to this aircraft. So you go down there, you take all your gear out of one, you walk it over to the other one, you do the same thing in that when you get it ready, and then the Marines would go to work on the other one. Because that way, that way there was always one, there were always basically three airplanes ready to go. On yeah. this nice. That's so cool. <laughs> It, it's it amazing. Crazy. It's amazing. I mean, of course, there's decades and decades of these procedures in place, but it's amazing uh, to me. You know, we we don't really generally think about military in terms of efficiency because of yeah, the bud- the true. budgets tend to get big. But when you when you think about the human actions necessary, they really you guys have really boil it down to. It boils to, down to training. Yeah, yeah like training and preparation. Right. We, we here's the mission. We yeah. got to get off the ground immediately. Okay, everybody. Yeah. Take 20 years and figure out exactly how we can get that down to the yeah. minimum possible effective you know, time. That's awesome. It's pretty cool. Early on in OIF, it became, you know, it, it took the Marine Corps, and specifically the HMLA community, a while to figure out the best way to support the requirement. You know, I mean, how do we, how, how do we get, you know, if, if we were in a very small fob, but if you're in a big base, you know, how, how, how can you get to the aircraft quick enough? Well, you have Bob, to build Bob is, Was that a forward operating base? Forward operating base, okay. yeah. You know, if you're if you're on a larger airfield, you got to make sure you're physically located close enough to the aircraft to get there within 30 seconds. You know, I mean, yeah. it means building a little shack on the flight line that you kind of hang out in during the day because it gets hot there. There was all those little things that yeah. somebody smarter than me had to figure out before we ever got there. And by the time we got there, <laughs> it was kind of a, this is just how we do it. And it, and it works. Yeah, I'm sure it does. It's badass, man. I mean, from from a civilian's perspective, there are there are very few things in the civilian world where where that level of immediate excellence is necessary and planned for. Yeah. There are there are things, right? You look at at uh, probably fire dispatches pretty high up there, or dealing yeah. with uh, yeah. a pipeline rupture in my industry. But but I, I don't deal with anything where the, where where the the threat of of death and destruction is so imminent. And it's it's, uh, no it's neat how it's really neat to hear how well you're you're 
you're dialed in and ready to go. I just, I was, I've never thought about it, but I was unaware of that. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I, I don't know I, about I, today, but back then I was really, you know, oof, boy, <laughs> back in my younger days, you know. I wonder too about jumping in one helicopter compared to another one that's mm-hmm. pretty much exactly like it, but I used to restore a lot of military vehicles and I had tons of M151s and M37s and Humvees mm-hmm. and things like that. And each one of them had a kind of had its own little personality, I'll call it. Yeah. And yeah. feel and vibe and just, you know, some of them, everything was just kind of in sync and it was nice and smooth and you'd have the exact same parts put together the exact same way and another one that wouldn't be that way. Are yeah. aircrafts about the same? They are, you know, and, and uh, um, the way we deployed with, you know, on, on those MU detachments, you had four Cobras and three Hueys. So as, as the four Cobras, you only had eight Cobra pilots. There's one, one butt per seat. Uh, and you got very, very familiar with all the little personalities of each of those four aircraft. Right. You know, they were, they were you, you called them by their side numbers, four one, four two, four three, and four four. And you're like, you're flying four two today. Oh, that's the one that, you know, the number two radio is a little weak. I mean, you just got very, very familiar with, with each one of them. And they all had mm-hmm. their own, like you said, their own little personality. Some of them were a little bit faster than others. Some yeah. of them had a little beat that the other one didn't, you know. That's just so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and those are just such, I mean, it, 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 you know, if our listeners will Google and, and see what one of those aircraft look like, it's just, uh, it's just amazing. It's a very intimidating looking aircraft when it's fully armed. They oh, were. Yeah. They're almost completely gone in the Marine Corps at this point. I think some of the reserve, we've all transitioned to the Zulu, the, the four-bladed version. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that always impressed me the most about them was that, the, you know, the, the Marines that work on them, uh, I mean, they, they took a lot of pride in those airplanes. They were, they were their airplanes before they were ours. Wow. Yeah. Um, and they took, they, and they were, they, you know, I'm not a mechanically oriented person. Like they, they, they knew heard, them better than we did. They I have heard officer did. after officer after officer give mad respect to their flight crews. Yeah, they, yeah. They, and they deserve they deserve every bit of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Do, do we want to talk, guys, a little bit briefly about the differences in the in the Zulu model, or do we want to move on to? Oh, I'd like to something just, else. Just yeah, maybe five sure. minutes. I mean, yeah, yeah because absolutely. I I'm in the middle of working on two different models, uh, yeah, a, uh, yeah. super Cobra and a, uh, a Zulu. And we'd just love to know, uh, some of your take on, on the differences between the two. Yeah. I can imagine the, the lift on the, uh, the Zulu must just be incredible. Yeah. So I, I got involved in the Zulu fairly early on, um, by, by grace of fluke luck, really. Um, in, in the, I went to the training command to be an instructor and the Marine Corps got one of them delivered to us and the CO said, Hey, do you want to fly it? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Why not? And that's <laughs> kind of how I got, I got into it. Um, but yeah, there, so they're, you know, just from a power perspective, I think the max gross weight on a whiskey model was 14,750 pounds. The max gross weight on a Zulu was 18,500. I mean, you could you like a whiskey, you couldn't carry as much ordinance as there was space for, because you would overload the aircraft, but the Zulu, wow. you you almost could, you could almost fill it wall to wall. If you look at pictures of it, I'm sure there. If you Google H1Z, there's probably pictures of it with eight Hellfire 36 rockets and a couple of sidewinders on the side, and it could carry that. That's like um, more it, than a B17 bomber. 
It was a lot. It was more than a couple of whiskey models. Um, <laughs> and it was also, you know, it was a, originally the program was built as a upgrade. So they were going to take old whiskeys and turn them into Zulus. And they did that. A lot of them are like that. I don't know what the final numbers of how many Zulus were brand new aircraft, but there are some. I'm just not sure what the number was. Uh, but it was a phenomenal aircraft. It is a phenomenal aircraft. It was all glass cockpit. Um, so you had two very big screens in the front seat and two very large screens in the back seat. The front seat and the back seat were completely identical, with the only exception of the you know the rotor brake was in the back seat, not the front seat. Uh, but but basically, you could do everything from the front seat that you could do from the back seat. Whereas in the whiskey, you know you could only shoot the Hellfire and the tow from the front seat. The pilot in the front seat of the whiskey was the only one who could see what the sensor, what the target in the sensor was looking Because of that bucket thing. Uh. Because of that bucket, right. But in yeah. the Zulu, it was much more comforting as the aircraft commanders. You could actually see what your what target your co-pilot had in the sensor. Whereas in the whiskey, you just had to trust them. Like, you know, make sure we're looking at the right thing because I can't see it. So you could do everything from either seat in the Zulu. It was faster. Um, had more gas. It, you know, the whiskey carried 2,000 pounds of gas. The, the Z carried 2,800. So you, you can get about two and a half hours out of it. Um, as opposed to the to about two that you'd get out of a whiskey. Um, the sensor on it was much more capable. You know, whereas in the in the whiskey, you know, at night with that FLIR, it was not uncommon to, oh, boy, I just flew over the target. There it is, because you couldn't find it. It was it was difficult. Um, in the Z, it had a much better sensor. We, You know, one of the things I did, I, I did uh, OpiVal. I went to a Navy test and evaluation squadron. One of the tests we did was called we called it dry testing, DRI testing, so detect, recognize, and identify. And we had to go very – we went out to White Sands Missile Range, and we had former Soviet Union pieces of equipment, and we would fly as far away as we could, and we would pre-point the sensor to a known location, and you would fly towards it. And you would say, okay, there's 10,000 meters. I can tell that that's a vehicle. There's 8,200. Yep, that's a tank. Okay, there's 7,200 meters. That's a this type of tank. Um, and in the whiskey, it was, you know, inside of 1500 meters, but in the Zulu, you could identify that target on average at about in between 6,000 and 8,000 meters. Wow. So you could shoot at the max range of your missile as opposed to having to get really close, which is obviously for survivability of the aircraft. You no longer have to get so close. You know, you can stay far away and wow. still hit the target. So that was, that was one of the bigger, like, phenomenal step ups in, in that aircraft was how, yeah, how much more survivable it was because you could stay that much farther away. Um, uh, yeah. I would imagine that would be help your wife sleep at night. Yeah. 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 Some of the other, you know, the, the whiskey could carry uh, sidewinder missiles as well. And it did, you know, the Z could carry them as well, but it could carry more and it had a better, it had a helmet system. You, you wore a very kind of goofy looking, it's called a top owl helmet. You had all your optics over your eye and you could, uh-huh. you could slave the seeker of the missile to your helmet and look at a target and shoot it, not full off axis, but a little bit. Um, there, there's a lot of kind of uh, avionics upgrades like that that kind of also made it, you know, moving map. Um, it had what's called a hands-on collective and stick system where you could change radios, select weapons, do all kinds of stuff without ever having to take your hands off the controls. Yeah, there's a lot of things nice. like that that were pretty, pretty, pretty cool step ups. That sounds mm. like so. It's not like a Chevrolet where they went out and painted it a different color and slapped Eddie Bauer on the side and called it a new no. model. That's a no. If it was a substantial it was a, upgrade, it sounds. First like of all, that's a Ford. 
Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> dude. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm only responsible for knowing about marine helicopters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to trying to come up with a bad example. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, they're both phenomenal aircraft, but the, the Zulu, I think now most of the Marine Corps hasn't. I've been out of the skid community for a while, but yeah. Wow. So which one, which one auto is better? The whiskey was easier um, because it was lighter. So, you know, autoing a, autoing a whiskey at 12,000 pounds compared to autoing a Zulu at 17.5. Yeah. It was a, it was a lot easier. Um, mm. and it wouldn't, you know, the, the Z would, it had a very high inertia rotor head. So if you were not careful doing practice autos, you would overspeed the head really easily. So, huh. you know, you, you would lower the collective and, and NR would build through the roof. So I, the, the rotor rotor, I'm sure you guys, you guys know what NR is. It, it would build through the roof very, very quickly. Uh, and you could overspeed the head pretty easily. We I actually know don't know. What, I don't know. I don't know what NR is, but we know what overspeed is and head energy okay, are. Yeah. So right. NR you, is just what we you, refer to rotor speed. Rotor RPM is basically okay. Yeah. Okay. NR. Yeah. Uh, and if you if you overspeed it too much, you can destroy the drivetrain of the aircraft. Yeah, I would imagine. Not not we, good for your uh, future in the community. We, we can do that too, but nobody dies when we do it. It's just hilarious, and everybody laughs yeah. at you. You yeah, might hang, die when you do it, but hands. they'd have to replace, you know, engines, transmissions, rotor heads, and your CO would not be very happy with you. <laughs> no, I wouldn't imagine, especially not for practice. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no, not worth it. If it's real, I'll overspeed it all day long as long as I walk away from it. Yeah, right. I, I so, bet. So when that when the Zulu came along, were you? I mean, were you involved in testing of that and and? So, I was not involved in the develop. I'm not, I'm not a test pilot. I didn't go to test pilot. I was not involved in the uh, developmental test, but I was sort of involved in the operational test, which was a lot of fun. Um, the Navy and Marine Corps now have test squadrons that do operational tests. And the difference is if it's developmental test, those are the Chuck Yeagers, the guys. This is this airplane's never flown before. That's mm. the first guy to go fly it. Um, operational test is where the, the developmental test is done. The Marine Corps is going to buy this product. Here's the list of requirements that we gave Bill Helicopter and said it needs to be able to do this. Here is your mission set. So mission set for the Cobra was close air support, deep air support, forward air control, you know, all the things we're supposed to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So I went to China Lake in northern central California, and we, for about seven months, we flew all of those missions. Um, in training, but you know, we, we, one of the coolest things about it was we had, you know, a lot of times in a, in a squadron in the fleet, you know, you're supposed to shoot 20 rockets that day, but for budgetary reasons or availability, you only get seven, but in test, you got everything. You got all the missiles, all the guns, all the rockets, and we got to shoot all of it. Mm. We got to, I mean, shoot all of it in every scenario and every flight regime that we were supposed to, um, and it was it was a really cool experience to spend seven months doing that, and and that was at the conclusion of that we were able to say yep it passes, um, and now it's going to go to the fleet and I, and and I was one of the augment pilots so I didn't you know basically my responsibilities were just to fly the airplane, um, you know occasionally I was lead, I would lead the flight that would do the close air support mission or the FAC A mission, um, plan some of them. And then, yeah, I mean, it was really incredible to be on the ground floor of that thing. And at the conclusion of that test, say, yep, it's ready to go. And during they're going that, to the first deployment. During that time, I mean, is that where you like, 
where the military develops the manuals, operating manuals. They did, yeah. So these. we were given one. We were given, a, and we called them a NATOPS, um, Naval Aviation. I can't remember what it stands for, but basically the directions. Uh, and it was written by the developmental test community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, um, but, you know, it was one of the interesting things about the more modern aircraft is they have a lot of software up. You know, so we had version three in the aircraft, version four in the simulator, but the NATOPS was written on version 2.5. Mm-hmm. So the, what happened in the simulator, the aircraft and the book were sometimes different. Um, and that process has, has been fixed because every time we get a new software update, you get a new manual with it. But so one of the, one of our responsibilities was to basically go word for word through that manual and say, no, this is not accurate. This needs to change or, yep, that's correct. And, and it was neat to be able to talk to some of the developmental test guys and say, Hey, this is what it says in the book. Is that right? Or, or is that wrong? And, and to kind of fix all those things and get them out to the community. Very interesting. Awesome. I could talk about aircraft for just <laughs> until I <laughs> die of old age, man. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah I, I, don't, I hope I'm not boring anybody. If I am. No, I'm hell not. Not, not, not us. I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't think no. you are. <laughs> okay. So you kind of went into the, the Viper in your first operational deployment. Let's talk about that with the 367 Scarface. It, what, yeah. Uh, Scarface, a very, very storied uh, Marine Aviation Squadron. Um, they were mm-hmm. uh, Vietnam-era um, Cobra and Huey Squadron. Um, so they, and they've done this squadron. I was only in it for a brief period of time, but has done a phenomenal job of like maintaining that history of Marine Aviation. They're very proud of it, and nice. they should be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so when I came back from China Lake from Operational Eval, um, I went to Scarface, and, and the idea was that we we would take guys that were experienced in the aircraft, and we would go do the first because it was there was a concern at the time that you know we didn't have we didn't have enough Zulu pilots for one. There were only like fifteen of us, and two, a lot of them didn't have a lot of flight time in it. They were very junior. Mm-hmm. So what what the Marine Corps decided to do was you know we sent four on the deployment. So each four of them has an aircraft commander. So the four aircraft commanders were all majors, um, very senior, 2,000-hour-plus Zulu pilots who had a lot of experience in the program. Um, I was fortunate enough to be one of those guys that was picked to do it. Um, and then all of our co-pilots were actually the first guys to select Zulus right out of flight school. So oh, it was, wow. was kind of neat. Um, we, we, we were you know, all those deployments were different. We had a very good group of guys, um, and we got to do the first deployment of this new aircraft, uh, and it was it was pretty pretty cool. We didn't, uh, you know, didn't really do any combat or anything. We did some stuff off the coast of various countries, but but um, I'm just to go out and showcase the aircraft. That it, there were concerns about it initially. You know, there were some concerns about the helmet system and a few other things. But to go out and do a very successful deployment uh, on that first one was was pretty cool thing to be a part of um yeah i would imagine it's i would imagine it's very cerebral just lots and lots of proving proving that things are what they say they are and and documenting and a lot of um and you know a lot of the the the, you know like we said it was one of the same deployments where we went we had an infantry battalion with just expanding a squadron, and the squadron had never had Zulus in it before. And the infantry guys had never worked with Zulus before. And the new command element, you know, the colonel that was in charge of it, didn't know anything about the new aircraft. So that was another one of our responsibilities, is to kind of showcase this thing, educate 
the, mm-hmm. our fellow Marines on it, so they knew yeah. that it was a capable aircraft, that it could do what it was supposed right, to here, do. Right. Here's what you can do differently on the on the battlefield now because of yeah, this. Yeah, here's right. what we can do that we couldn't do before. And truthfully, okay. here's what we could do before that we can't do now. You know, there are yeah. things that, right. you know, I mean, that, that, are, that are different. I mean, and that... That and also, like, if you think about anything new, you kind of need to prove its worth, right? Like, yeah, make sure you can we, trust we, it. And that know. was a large part of the decision to deploy the aircraft when it did was to get it out there. You know, mm-hmm. we want to get it out there and make you know, yeah, it, build not that confidence concept because that's mm-hmm. what Opival was. But yeah, build some confidence in it. You know, make sure that that uh, it, you know, it's just like any new aircraft in the military. Now it takes a long time. It takes a long time to sit evaluate it it takes a long time to get the parts kind of supply up and running because there was a period of time where we just didn't have a lot of aircraft to fly because the the parts weren't coming and it's nobody's fault right. it's just it's a new aircraft mm-hmm. we're learning new things about it we're learning better ways to maintain it we're learning better ways to fly it and it's going to take some time for that parts supply chain to get mature enough to support it right right yeah um, yeah and it looks like during this time you were promoted to major. I was. I was de- promoted to major, um, and then I went on that deployment. And then when I came back, um, one of the things you know in, in the Marine Corps, you have to do certain levels of school. Okay. Um, and so I went to command and staff. And that's a that's the school. It's called intermediate level school. It's for field officers, basically majors, and every service has one. Um, and you, you kind of have to do it if you want to get promoted to lieutenant colonel. It's one of those things that it's not a it's it's not a check in the box. It's just one of those things. That the Marine Corps says, hey, if you want to be a lieutenant colonel, you need to have done this training. You, you need to educate yourself. And so most guys will actually do it online, which that's what I was doing because um, you can do it via distance education. But I got selected to go to a resident course. Um, and I don't know why I got picked to go to the Air Force one. I just did. Okay. <laughs> so the year uh-huh. I got picked, there were, you know, there were, there's four schools. The Marine Corps has one, the Army has one, the Navy has one, and the Air Force has one. So I got picked to go to the school, and about three months later, the results of the, the selection came out, and I went to Montgomery, Alabama for a year to go to the Air Force Command and Staff College. It was a really interesting experience, specifically because I think, if I remember correctly, there were about 600 people in this course. And only 12 Marines. A lot of Air Force guys had never met wow. a Marine before, never worked with a Marine before. Yeah, <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, so you could, you know, you were the you were the representative of your service. You could make up things all day and nobody would be able to argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not, not that you would ever do that. Not ever. that you would, of course not. Of course not. Yeah. Uh, there were also a lot of international students. Uh, I mean, pretty much any country in the world allies with had a student at this school. You know, it's an Air Force school, so they love to talk about air power. You know, we studied the World War II air campaign a lot, but it was it was interesting. It was just it was nice to be away from the Marine Corps for a little while, see some sister service experience, and you know the, the way that the Air Force and the Army and the Navy do things because they were all there too. Um, and it was a pretty neat. It was also a really nice experience in that for the first time in about ten years, I was home every night and every weekend for a whole year. That right, was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, cool. uh, yeah, that was it was like my my experience with the uh, Air Force command and staff, and then after that, I went right back to the right back to the fleet. Okay, yeah, yeah. nice. So, tra- Travis, are there any other uh, before we get into HMX one? Sure. Um, are there are there any other highlights 
about your career? Like any, anything that sticks out at you that you think people might find interesting? Like what is it like to, to have your first command or um, um, those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the, the, the highlight of my career thus far may be surprising, but the last deployment I did, I was the detachment officer in charge of, of the H1 detachment. So like I mentioned, the, the MU, when we put those three units together, you know, the aviation squadron, the infantry battalion, and the logistics support element, the aviation squadron is comprised of, at this time, V-22s, Harriers, CH-53s, Cobras, and Hueys. And each one of those, you know, units has a dead OIC, the attachment officer in charge. So the Harrier guy was in charge of his Harriers. The CH-53 guy was in charge of his 53s. And I got yeah. to be the guy that was in, was in charge of my H-1 detachment. So I had 88 Marines and seven helicopters that I deployed with that I was solely. And that was probably the highlight of my career. I, I told my guys before we left that, you know, the, we, we needed to have some goals. And goal was number one, everybody comes home. Number two, all of our aircraft and equipment come home in good working order. And number three, everybody learns something. And we did all that. Nice. And we came back. We'd, we'd flown more than anybody else. All my pilots got a lot of flight time and quals. All the Marines got, you know, whether it's the first time going to Singapore or you pick up a new qualification on the aircraft, everybody got some kind of experience. And to be able to, to lead those Marines across the, across the world was, was probably the highlight of my career. That was, that was pretty, one of those things that makes all the tough work and all the other uh-huh. things kind of, it was the payoff, I think. Nice. Wow, a lot of responsibility. Mm, I bet it was. Um, yeah, and I was the executive officer of that squadron. So the the, the commanding officer of the squadron was a V twenty two pilot, um, and he was a phenomenal guy. And I was his executive officer, which means I was the number two of a five hundred and sixty man unit. Um, wow. And we had we you know a lot of things kind of fell into place in that deployment. We had great people. We had. You know, you know, we put a lot of people together for on a ship for a long time. Real personalities come out. People get pissed off at each other, and we were fortunate that we had a, a group of pilots that just gelled. You know, we, we had a great unit, a great squadron, and and I was I was lucky to be a part of it. That's awesome, man. That's that's yeah. really good. I'm, I'm glad to hear a, a, a a good story about that. Yeah, it was a good one. Very good one. Awesome. Anything else that you want to bring up before we get into HMX? No, I don't think so. Unless you guys have any questions about anything, we can we can talk about HMX. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into that. All right, let's get into the juicy. Okay, everybody, wait. Everybody, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I went. I went and met you. I guess it was. I can't remember. If it was late 2017 or early 2018. But when Trump was flying into Houston, uh, I got a call yeah, from from my was, father uh, and said. And said, "Hey, Travis, our our buddy who flies Marine One, he's going to be in Houston. Would you like to go see the helicopter?" And I was like, "You know, I, my reaction was something like this: like cover the mouthpiece on the phone, turn around to my wife, <laughs> yeah. and say, we are fucking dropping everything <laughs> right now <laughs> until further really notice.' And then I turn around, I get back on back on the phone, and go, "Yeah, I think that'd be a pretty cool day. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can make that work. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think we'll yeah, yeah just very nonchalantly go. You know." Mm-hmm. Try not to have my eyeballs fall out of my head. It was uh, so. I, I just, just I want to give give an outside impression of of that little tiny tiny piece of the squadron uh, sure. because not very, not very many people ever get to see a white top 
up close in person, sit inside and all that stuff. I, I remember showing up to the airport and having, uh, you know, military precision, everything. We had very clear written instructions, park here, go here, talk to this person. This person will inform the squadron, your friend Travis, when he's time and when the, when the current visitors are gone, will come walk over here and escort you. And it was just like, boom, boom, boom. It, was, yeah. it, it reminded me of, of like in the 90s before we had directions on our, on our phablets. You know, we, we would yeah. sit down and plan a day just to go do something simple. It was that kind of yeah. level of detail. <laughs> it was just eyes dotted, T's crossed. And uh, I remember getting off the phone yeah. going, man, that was just, it sounds silly, but that little phone call was kind of impressive. And then, uh, then we get to the squadron and you know, it, it's, it's a bunch of Marines standing around a helicopter and they're generally at ease, but the way the gear was laid out and everything was racked out, ready to go. And, yeah. uh, how much tight control you guys had over the the few guests that were there and and the amount of attentiveness to to surroundings even though you know that this is somebody that you know and that you vouch for we have me and my wife and my two children in the hangar and there was always a passive eye on us making sure we weren't screwing around yeah. and being knuckleheads and it was just very uh it was I'm, I'm trying to think of a good analogy it reminded me of a of of cats like laying around trying to decide whether they're whether they need to go kill that mouse or not. Like everybody was <laughs> relaxed, having a good time, joking, but there was no bullshit either. It was it was the 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 atmosphere was a very serious, very uh, very noticeable atmosphere. It was it yeah. was it was impressive just to walk into the room and be like, okay, these guys are they're all business. I like this. Yeah, this those security cool. marines take that very very seriously. Yeah, it was yeah. it was very neat. And then, of course, you were such a, a gentleman and 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 uh, answered all of our ignorant questions and let us uh, look inside the aircraft and and put our. I, I love to do that kind of stuff because, like you said, it's such a rare opportunity. And just to, you know, when you do a hometown trip like that, I spent both days in the hangar showing people around, and I love doing it because one, everybody loves to talk about themselves, and, and two, it's just a it's a rare opportunity for your friends and family to get to see something they otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else that was too. I mean, th this is just my my thoughts, but I'm, I'm sure that George will appreciate the comment. Is just that uh, you know the 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 military, for better or for worse, has always been at the center of political drama, and a lot of time what comes up is money. And before uh, before that experience, I had a pretty good sense, you know, being a being a, of my political ilk that that we're getting our money's worth but after that experience it's like man i see what we're paying for and it is <laughs> legit professionalism these guys are not screwing around it is that yeah. it's it's a very very serious thing and of course the responsibility uh, and the stress level must be through the roof if something were to go wrong but it, it, it really it was it was like man it was a bunch of young relatively young guys doing yep. an exceptional job and it, it gave me a very good feeling walking out of there it was like okay i get it i understand why we pay for yeah. that that makes sense hey it, it's, one of those it's things the best that of our ceos would always say is that you, you always have to remember who you represent um mm -hmm. and there's there's no room for you know you can't be unprofessional you can never be unprofessional because someone is always watching yeah yeah especially when you're in, in that 
assignment, I would imagine. Yeah. So what right. so what made you decide to apply for HMX one? And just to clarify, yeah. I, I, I'm throwing this around because I've thrown it around with with Steve and with with you and everybody else. But anybody who's listening, HMX one. Uh, among other responsibilities is responsible for operating Marine one. So yeah, that, that that's, that's just the name of the squadron. When we say that, um, what made me want to do it? That's so it, it's actually a fairly easy answer. Uh, ever since I got helicopters out of flight school, I always wanted to go to HMS. Oh, okay. Um, and, and it's just <laughs> because it, it, you know, it's, it's this iconic thing to be a part of. And I, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, I mean, it's just to be, Mm-hmm. A part of that unit that has that. And I'm, a, I'm a huge history buff. And so one of the things I loved about HMX was you walk mm-hmm. down the hall, the building and the pictures on the wall. And just to be a part of that history, like I'm, there's a picture in our ready room of John F. Kennedy getting on the back of Marine One. And, and there's a picture of mm-hmm. Eisenhower walking off Marine One at Camp David next to John Kennedy. And, you know, it, there's just some just to be a part of that history. Um, and I'd yeah. known guys that had done it throughout my time in the fleet. I'd known guys that had been at HMX and they had always said it's one, it's one of the greatest experiences you'll ever have Two, It's, you know, one of the most professional organizations you can ever be a part of. And, and it is, and I can say that unreservedly, probably wow. one of the most professional organizations I've ever been a part of. And that's, and I've been, a, and this is not a slight to any other unit that I've ever been in because I've been in some good ones, but HMX is a, is a extraordinarily professional organization that has a no-fail mission with a history that's just it, it's pretty awe-inspiring just to be a part of it yeah we're we're, gonna, we're, we're definitely going to ask you about a little bit of that history sorry go ahead go ahead, oh, yeah, go ahead. I, was, I was just going to ask i mean wouldn't that really be the pinnacle of a marine helicopter pilot's right what would be more HMX is, a, is a you know <laughs> as a helicopter pilot it is it's like you know, you can't really have a more prestigious job. The Sancta Sanctorum, without man, a doubt, as uh-huh. a helicopter guy, right. there's really nothing you can do in any service of the military that's more prestigious than 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 flying Marine One, right. even as a co-pilot. You know, I mean, right. whatever you're doing. Yeah. Um, and in the Marine Corps, it is it's looked on as a as a very honorable, admirable job. But at the end of the day, what the Marine Corps values is fleet experience, de- deploying. You know, I mean, that's that's what they value and this not not as a insult to hmx it's just that you know operational excellence is kind of what the marine corps is is based on oh yeah and we we do we try to do that at hmx it's just our we do do that at hmx just the way we operate is very different but it is it's a very very different mission i would imagine that you know not everybody wants to do that job probably some people just want to do combat and i would imagine that's also fine but yeah it's we, 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 in, a, in our civilian ignorance, Travis, we were all very proud when that news came down that you were going to be in that squadron. Uh, it was, it was talked about a lot. It was phone. I mean, it was, you know, in the age of the internet, people were picking up the phone going, Hey man, do you hear about Travis? This is awesome. We're proud of this guy. So it was, uh, you, even, even, even us wet behind the ears don't really know how meaningful it might be. We were, we were very pleased for you. So obviously it was something you had in mind for a long time. What was the application process like? Like what, how, how? How do you go about getting this job? So the selection process, it's, a, it's an annual, you know, we call it a board, a pilot selection panel or a board. Um, and every year, the squadron will send out a message to all Marine helicopter and V-22 units. And they'll say, HMX is now accepting applications. You know, submit your application by this day. 
the board meets on this day, and then the results come out on this day. Um, so basically, you know, you submit an application. The application consists of a short bio. You know, the, the, the key look at is, you know, how many flight hours do you have? There used to be a minimum requirement, uh, and there's still a kind of an unwritten minimum requirement. Um, how many deployments you've done, what your experience is, all of those things are pretty important. But but even more important, a lot of that is your professional reputation. So I think I mentioned it earlier, marine aviation is a very, you know, compared to the Air Force or Naval aviation or even the Army, I mean, the Army has more pilots than the Air Force does. I mean, it's it, the, the Marine Corps is a very, marine aviation is a very, very small um, unit. So we're community what basically what that means is everybody knows everybody so work, work everybody knows you yeah. yeah so your professional reputation goes a long way um so you submit your application and it gets to hmx and in our ready room we have a big binder and in that binder your application with your picture is in it two or three pages of your application your short bio and then a comment section so every pilot at hmx can walk up in there and write i know bevo he's a great guy We'd love to have him here or good Lord, not this guy. No way. Um, <laughs> you can, and that's how it goes. And, and so your, 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 your application is sitting there for a couple of weeks. Um, and then whenever the application deadline occurs, they pull all the applications down. And then we basically pick a couple of pilots in the squadron. So we, you know, we want to make sure it's a good mix. We pick a couple of Cobra pilots, a couple of Huey pilots, a couple of 53 pilots, a couple of E-22 pilots, and we all go into a room together, and we basically have a knockdown dragout. We rack and stack all of our applicants, um, and we usually we usually we don't have to, but we try and make sure we have a good mix of H one like Cobra and Huey pilots, and fifty three pilots and V twenty two pilots because we we do want to make sure that the the fleet across all of these communities is represented at HMX because it makes a difference. Um, you know, you want you want a breadth of experience. You don't want all Cobra guys. You know, you, right. you want to make sure you've got some mixture. Um, and you kind of rack and stack your guys. Board takes two days of sometimes heated conversations. Sometimes some, uh, you know, <laughs> tables get flipped. I'm just kidding. You know. but, uh, <laughs> it, it, does get, it can get a little emotional, you know. Some of these guys are your friends. And you want them in, but maybe maybe the other guys is a little bit more qualified. So, you know, we, we just yeah, we want to make sure, sure we, sure job we maintain the standard. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And you also – not just objectively, you know, does he have a lot of flight time? Um, does he have a lot of qualifications? Does he have a lot of experience? But can I live with this guy on the road for a week? You know, I mean, does he, does mm-hmm. he have some ability to, you know, kind of, does, does we go on this, like that trip I was on in Houston, that was halfway through a, a trip. You know, we went from Houston to Charlotte, from Charlotte to somewhere else, I don't even remember. Um, and my co-pilot and I were together the whole time. So that, that's, yeah. that's part of the, selection process (laughs) and that's specific to pilot um so you you know that's that's part of how you get in so when i applied i submitted my application and you can also get recommendation letters um and so i knew some guys that were former hmx pilots uh, that that were hmx pilots in good standing you know had good reputations and and so i asked for a couple of recommendation letters i got a few it also helped that i knew several people that were at hmx and some of them who didn't didn't know me or I didn't know them. We knew each other by reputation. So that, that's kind of, it's kind of how it worked for me. Uh, the year I, I, I applied in 2015, got selected in 2015 and then checked into the squadron in September of 2016. Right. 
did, did you did did they do a bunch of interviewing or was it just you you uh, apply and then you find out or did you have phone calls? There or is no interviews? interview process. No, there's no interview process, okay. uh, and that's a function of I think just how small a community HM or the Marine Aviation is. And at the end of the day, yeah. that, that pilot selection panel submits our names, and it's twelve helicopter pilots every year and eleven V twenty two pilots of all the applicants. Those are the number that we can take. And those names go to the CEO who has the final authority. The CEO can say, no, I, don't, I know that guy. I don't want him. And that's his prerogative because he's the commanding officer of the squadron. Mm-hmm. But that, that rarely happens because usually the CEO, you know, knows the people he puts on the panel. Uh, and those people are like just anybody at HMX would be professional enough. We're not going to send names to the CEO for selection that don't rate it. Right. That makes sense. All right. Um. So, so you apply and all this, uh, yeah. Kid um, so goes you, on behind the scenes yeah. and then the day comes and you get the notice and your name is yeah, on the my list. name. This thing that so you've been thinking about for a lot of years. I mean, just a long time. Just and real quick, Travis, I want to know, I, I want to know if you lost your shit for a minute, did you get excited <laughs> for, for about a minute? I did. Yeah. Um, and I was actually, so it, the way it comes out is the Marine Corps has a website, marines.mil, and on it there are messages, and it's published publicly. Mm-hmm. And so you, you wait. I was checking the message board every day. Every day I checked the message board. Every day I checked the message board. And then it came out. I actually found out before I looked at the message because I had about five emails from buddies of mine who saw it. I said, hey, congratulations. Like, oh, and so I kind of, before I looked at the message, I knew my name was on it. That's um, fantastic. And I was actually on the boat. and for deployment uh, so I couldn't even and I couldn't even call Tasha for about three or four days to tell her hey we're going to move to Virginia next year oh, <laughs> um, but she I mean she obviously knew I had applied and I, I think she knew I had a pretty good chance I think I had a pretty decent chance I mean it's always very competitive and you never can tell maybe they wanted less Cobra pilots that year but uh, um, so yeah it, it was I mean I kind of yeah, got real sure. I lost it for a few minutes and then you know, there's never a guarantee fly. I was yeah, still working never- yeah yeah. 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 That's awesome. I, but, uh, I yeah, sort of imagine you crack, cracking a little grin and then going on with your day, but I'm <laughs> right. <laughs> go back to work. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> and go right yeah. back to work. Yeah, yeah. I was really yeah. excited though. Like I said, it was one of those things I'd wanted for so long, uh, you know, to fly the president and to land in the white house lawn and, and to yeah. know that, that I'd gotten selected to get the, the opportunity to do it. Cause you know, you still have to get to HMX and it's about a year's worth of training before yeah. you do anything and just to know that I'd gotten the opportunity was, was yeah. pretty, it was a pretty good moment. Good. That's awesome, man. I, well, going into I, can, I can't, I can't even imagine. What was so, it like the first time you flew with the president in the park? Yeah. <laughs> it was, what was uh, that like? That, that was no pressure at all. That was surreal. So the first time you do, you do it as it's the way it works is you, you get there, you spend your first year of training. You got to learn to fly the H three and the H-60, and then we have another syllabus you have to go through. And by the time you've done all that, you're a mission-qualified co-pilot. Um, and your second year, you're a co-pilot the whole year, uh, which after being a flight instructor and a leader, flight leader for so long, it was kind of nice actually to be a co-pilot for a little bit. Um, so the first time you, you – so if you ever watch it on TV and you see the president walk onto the plane, you see that guy in the window looking out that, the window, the sticking his yeah. head forward, that's, that's the co-pilot. So your second year, that guy is the co-pilot. Um, I have a great picture of me, but, 
um, the first time you do it, the first time I did it was in what was called an, an out. So it means we were taking him from the White House to Andrews. So we landed at the White House, and, you know, I don't land. I'm the co-pilot. I'm just, you know, looking out the window. And then um, if you see on TV those big red discs that the wheels are sitting on. I was going to ask uh, you about that. How is yeah, that accomplished? So those, yeah. those are called the pucks. I don't know what it stands for. I think they're called pucks because they look like hockey pucks. And they're five uh-huh. feet wide. And you're, you got to land all three wheels in the pucks because um, you don't want to damage the South Carolina or the White House. Yeah. Uh, so my responsibility as a co-pilot is that the pilot is, is, is looking out the front and he's got lateral lineup. He's got left and right. But what he, can't, he can't see the pucks. He can't tell right. when he's over them. He, he's got some visual cues to know when he's getting close. Mm-hmm. But my job is to call him you know, 15, 10 forward, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, edge of the boards, Breaks on touchdown. That's that's the only thing I had to do. Um, and you, you know, better get it right. You don't want to miss the pucks. You better get it right. Uh, that's the most. Um, you don't want to miss the pucks. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else, it's landing. You, know, you mess that up, everybody's going to notice. Um, yeah, the whole, the whole world so we sit there. The whole world's watching. Yeah, and uh, this was let's say like May of 2017, probably something like oh, that. Yeah. Um, so we're sitting there. And um, you know, when you land, you, you have a few things you have to do. There's a small checklist you have to do while you're waiting the, the president. And you go, go through that checklist. And the guy I was flying with, great guy, he's like, hey, when, when we land, do yourself a favor. After we do the checklist, take a minute, look out the window, and just appreciate where you are. And he was right. I mean, I, I, I'll never forget that advice. Mm. So I did. We did this stuff, and I looked out the window, and I thought, oh, my God. I'm looking at the portico of the White House. And I was wow. speechless for a few minutes. I couldn't really think of anything to say. And then the president walked out. And I was overwhelmingly attempted to smack the guy next to me and go, hey, look, it's the president. I didn't because <laughs> he's obviously done this a couple of dozen times. You know, yeah, yeah. It was just a surreal experience. He comes up in the cockpit. He says, hello. He says, thanks for the ride. Very friendly. And then he gets to the back. And at that point, it's it's back to business. I mean, it's yeah. it's Flying helicopter. Even as the co-pilot, like your responsibilities, you're a part of the crew, but the pilot in command is the one who does all the flying, obviously. But you're, I mean, I don't want to, like, I don't want to mess anything up. I don't want, I'm backing him up and, and you're, you're very, you know, when he's on board and you're flying, it's, it's business. You can't, there's, there's, uh, there's no acceptable level of risk when, when you're doing that job. Um, yeah. So imagine. that part of it can be somewhat nerve wracking, but, but like the advice that guy gave me, Everywhere I went, every time I flew them and everything I did, I always tried to take a moment to look out the window and just appreciate where I was. It was, it was a pretty real experience. The first one, yeah. and even the last time I did it, every time it was it was almost a surreal experience. It's almost one of those things where I can't believe I'm sitting here, you know, a Talking public high school it. kid from South right. Texas. I can't believe that this is where I've where I've gotten. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. I I like that story a lot. Just look around. Yeah. Now, that's good advice well, for for everybody who's not starting. Good advice started, for everybody. By the way. Yeah. 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 Hey, did you did you know it was going to be the last time you flew the president when you flew him? I guess you you knew that. I did not. Oh, you um, did. No, I. So the last time I did it was about two months ago, and I was supposed to do one more, um, but that event got canceled. Uh, then it was not a. I mean, it just got it got canceled because the travel schedule changes so rapidly. Oh wait! Is so my one my one? last one was scheduled for I can't remember the date, but it got the, the it got shifted, and it, I was going to do that flight and then leave Virginia the next day to move to Texas because my wife and kids had already gone. 
And mm. that event got shifted and the CEO said, Hey, you can stay and do it if you want to. I'm like, no, I, I'm okay. I'll, I'll pack up and head on south. Welcome back, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. Welcome home. So you, you mentioned the history of the squadron and I don't want to, I don't want to get overly long in, in the tooth, but um, no. you want to hit, hit a couple of highlights? And yeah. So the originally the squadron um, was founded after World War II and the, the X in the squadron stands for test. Um, and it's, it was designed to test, you know, helicopters are very new and it's, it was intended to test uh, how the Marine Corps is going to use helicopters tactically. That's what it did for a little while. And then I think it's 1957. Uh, the president needed to get back to DC very quickly. Um, and there happened to be a Marine helicopter nearby. They picked he said, him up, Give me a ride. Went back, and that was it. <laughs> and there from, the, from that point on, HMX was born. Our primary mission was transportation of the president, the vice president. We also fly the vice president. We fly visiting foreign dignitaries, heads of state. Um, we occasionally fly, uh, yeah, occasionally fly celebrities. Uh, we, we occasionally fly um, cabinet secretaries, uh, departments of defense, things like that. It, it's pretty rare, but we do do it. Um, and then one of the other things, up until a few years ago, we still actually did it. We still did operational test. It was part of the squadron. And actually, the squadron does operational test now because they're in the process of transitioning to the new Mm -hmm. VH-92. VH-92, yeah. Um, so that's good. That's a real down and dirty on the history. I mean, uh, one of the, like I said earlier, the, I mean, the water has so much history. It's it's like, you know, there's a yeah. picture of John Kennedy Jr. in the cockpit of an H-3 in the ready room, yeah. which is surreal when you think about it. I mean, it's it really is. Story. It's, it's been a while. But it's you walk by that yeah. and you look at that and you go, man, I, can't, I, mean, I can't believe I'm, I'm here. I mean, and, you know, we, if you see on the, we don't, we don't wear helmets in the cockpit and, and uh, we wear, you know, boys nose, nose canceling headsets. And I don't know if this is true, but the story I was told is one day Nancy Reagan looked up in the cockpit and said, how come the pilots have helmets on? And we don't the next day, no more helmets. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that's the story that's, that I was yeah. told. I, I can believe it. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, may, it may be, it may very well be true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, we have the squadron, has gone all over the world. It's it's landed. I mean, I landed at Windsor Castle. Um, oh, wow! You know, it's the DMZ. Um, did you, you know, land on that gigantic long long grass walk that they have? Is that where you landed? Yeah, yeah, right, right there. I got it's a great picture. Right? Um, yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah. Windsor Castle is the one out of the city. Buckingham Palace is yeah. We landed at Windsor Castle. That's got to be the greatest done, lawn in the world. <laughs> it was really really cool. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was really really neat. And, that was what, you know, there were, there were no bad ones. I went to South Korea, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've landed at the Imperial palace in Tokyo. I say we, I mean, HMX in general, yeah. um, you know, the wall street pad, in New York city. I mean, you name it, uh, anywhere he's gone in a helicopter since 1957 has been HMX one. Wow. That's so cool. That really is. Uh, I, one of the things I was surprised to find out when I started doing my 40 hours or whatever I spent to try to get ready for have this conversation with you was, uh, it, be it became quite the interesting. Yeah. It's taken over my life for a little bit, but how, uh, I was surprised to find out how big the squadron is in terms yeah, of total, total Marines. How many people are um, there? Oh, I, I think there's uh, over 800. I, yeah. I, I read, I read a Frenchie's uh, book and it was, yeah, many hundreds. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. So back uh, then I assume it's, it's a, uh, the same or more. I think it's, over 800 i think and it's it's a very unique squadron in that we have you know we have the white top aircraft um mm -hmm. and then we have the v-22s so that's almost it's basically like three squadrons worth 
of like if, if that number of helicopters in the fleet would be about three squadrons worth. Mm. Yeah. So that's yeah. why it's commanded by a full bird colonel as opposed to a lieutenant colonel, which most Marine squadrons are commanded by. Now, we also have our very own company of, of MPs, which no one else has. So that's one of the reasons we have such a large number. We have our own company of military police. We have dogs. You know, we have a lot of things that normal units would not. We also have a large number of civilian contractors that work for Sikorsky. Um, that that uh, they travel with us. You know, they they teach us. When you go there as a pilot, you have to go through ground school, and a Sikorsky contractor instructor teaches you ground school. Um, so yeah, it's it's big. Eight hundred fifty, eight hundred ninety, somewhere around there. Yeah. Nice. What was the? Uh, what? Yeah, yeah, that's that's big. It's a lot of people. How how many? Uh, how many? So you, so you have three different aircraft that you currently operate. You have the 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 White Hawk, the Sea King. And then you have the Osprey, right? Can, right. You want to yeah. you want to kind of run down the, quickly the the kind of the differences between the the yeah, the, sure. uh, the Corvette um, and the Cadillac and what they're used sure. for. So the way the squadron works is you have helicopter pilots and V twenty two pilots. And if you go there as a helicopter guy, you'll fly the H sixty and the H three. And if you go there as a V twenty two guy, you'll fly the V twenty two. So you don't you don't intermix because it would take too long to train. A yeah. helicopter guy to fly yep. a V-22 and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So when I went there, I flew the H-3 and the H-60. So the H-3 is the, like I said, it's the iconic one. You know, it's the one that's been around for a long time. It's when you say Marine One, generally speaking, that's what most people think of. That's the um, one that lands on the South Lawn. It's yeah. the one that lands on the South Lawn. It's the one that, you know, that, that kind of has been around a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also more presidential looking, you know. I mean, if you think about right. it's photographed uh, a lot. It's photographed a lot. It's uh, it's much bigger in the interior. You can actually walk without having to hunch over from the cockpit of the to all the way to the tail in, inside the cabin. It's very roomy and comfortable, uh, and it's quiet. But it's also older, so it you know it, it's not as powerful as the sixty. It doesn't have the same um, you know it, it, like at higher altitudes and hot weather. It, it's definitely limited on its power available. Um, that's why we use it mostly, you know, we, for more often than not, that thing is used, um, white house to say, well, yes, yeah, it's white house to South lawn or places where we know that we're not going to run into power, but like New York city, we always use it in New York city. Uh, but if you're going to go to Colorado, we're going to take the H 60. Um, mm, okay. and the H 60 is again, it can fit just as many people. It's a very capable, very, very incredible aircraft, but it's a little more cramped in the back. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it does have glass cockpits. It's got a very nice AFCS system. Like flying the thing is, I mean, it almost flies itself. It, it's mm-hmm. like flying a Cadillac. Right? I was saying earlier, flying an H three, you really have to fly it. You got to work to fly it. Um, the H sixty is also much easier to travel with. You can take it off, put it on a C seventeen, and take it off very quickly. And when you get to wherever you're going, it only takes it takes a very short amount of time to build it and, and have it ready to fly. The H three is a little. I mean, it's not much longer, but it's a little more complicated. Um, it takes a little longer to get you on. You have to take the rotor head off to fit it in that. You plane, have to take you? the rotor blades off. Yeah, so the rotor blades will come off, and the tail rotor blades come off. This just folds. You just fold the thing. You don't have to take anything off. You get where you're going, you unfold it. And it's ready to go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a little more intensive to take a three someplace than it is to take a sixty. So Travis, um, you mentioned New York City. I gotta mm-hmm. ask this question. It might be way before your time. But in '96, when I used to work there in Manhattan, I uh, they used to block off the entire city 
Instead of landing at the UN, the president would land at Battery Park and drive all the way up to the UN. Is there a reason why he just couldn't land there? Was it because of, of the size of the helicopter, or was it his choice? It's probably a size thing. Okay. Uh, and, it's, and I can almost unequivocally tell you it's probably, it was probably not his choice. Okay. I can almost with, uh, with an absolute degree of certainty tell you it was the Secret Service's choice, combined with HMX-1. Because um, the Secret Service controls, I mean, you know, they, we work with the Secret Service fairly rarely, regularly. They're a very professional organization, and they're, they obviously take their primary responsibility of protecting the president extraordinarily seriously. So they, they determine, for Very. the most part, what his motorcade routes are like. They work with us on helicopter sites. But in New York City, I don't know about then, but I know now he goes to the Wall Street bed. That's, that's where we land. Okay. Uh, which is in the East River, south yeah. of the Brooklyn Bridge. That's, yep. And, yep. you know, the street is pretty big. So, yeah, there are helipads in the city, but he, he can't land on them. It, it's, yeah. The H3 is too big. Well, ever since they had that crash there, they, they don't want any, any, uh, yeah. really any aircraft yeah. going over the city. I was, I was curious because yeah. that, that had been a question, uh, I've had, I mean, you're the perfect guy to ask. And, and that's been a, I remember the rumblings in 96, you know, of guys, yeah. you know, why has he got to do that? And now I know it wasn't really yeah. his choice. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really his choice. You know, a lot of things that are done are for his protection and, and, uh, and, and rightfully so. You know, he's the, yeah. uh, that green and white aircraft and that blue and white airplane are a representative of our country. And it's important that you know, they, they, uh, they were well protected. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just this. Most precious cargo in the world, just about, other than maybe yeah. children. So, um, with, with all the other flights that you've done all over the world, I got to ask this too. Have you yeah. ever seen a drone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not anywhere near us. No. I mean, I've heard, you know, flying on the radio, I've heard, you know, a report of a drone. I've been, I've heard, you know, you're not, there are no drones in, in DC. They're not supposed to be. Right. Occasionally it'll happen and you'll hear it, you'll hear it on the radio. But I've never had an encounter with one in, oh. in, a, in, in a white top helicopter. Okay. In any helicopter or no? Say again. Have you had a, an encounter with one in any helicopter? Not that I think of. Not that oh, I can okay. think of. No. Uh-uh. All right. You probably remember. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, in HMX, <laughs> um, we we were pretty well protected when we flew, and and prior to that, you know, in 2016. I don't. I mean, they were getting more prevalent, but they weren't as prevalent as they are now. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's a couple of more things I wanted to touch on. Uh, you, I've got a whole list of questions here and just, just over the course of talking, we've ticked a lot sure. of the boxes, but there's a couple of things that I think people would find uh, very interesting. So I'm going to give you both of them and then just let everybody chip in. The first one okay. is, uh, what's it like having the entire world as your operational theater? I mean, what's it, what are the differences between operating in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and North America and Asia and all that kind of stuff? So that, that's one question. And then the other thing I'd like to do is kind of like walk through an operational mission, right? You get the word, you do the planning, you do the logistics, uh, you fly in groups of two or three or however many, you, you protect the president in certain ways, you coordinate with secret service. Like what is the magic sauce that makes all that come together? Sure. So, um, you know, an HMX flying all over the world is a lot different than it is, you know, in the Marine, you know, in Marine aviation. Like I've flown in, I don't know how many countries in a Cobra, but in a, in a white top, um, it's very different, uh, because you, you know, you have diplomatic 
uh, personnel that, that go ahead of you to plan for these presidential visits. Uh, you have, I mean, you have so many people that are working on the ground before we even get there that by the time we get there, we're basically given a packet that says, Hey, this is who you need to talk to. This is where you're going to fly and this is where you're going to go. As a pilot, it's, it's really easy. And one of the people that we have at HMX that does that is called a, a White House liaison officer. Yeah, it's a, I've heard a about wheel. that, dude. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> probably one of the greatest jobs in the world. <laughs> they, uh, they're a pilot at HMX. They're an HMX pilot, but their collateral duty is to be a White House liaison officer. So before we go someplace, the WELO goes ahead. So if you're doing, a like a, for example, to Houston, the WELO went ahead maybe four days ahead, four days ahead of time. They coordinate our hangar space. They coordinate hotels. They coordinate rental cars. They work with the local FAA to let them know what we're going to do what we need to do. One of the things we do after we take the 60 off the C-17 is we have to fly it. It's kind of like a maintenance penalty flight. You know, you, you don't want the first flight to be with the president on board. You want to have right. flown it beforehand. You also want, as a pilot, you know, you want to be able to fly to local area to, you know, see where, just take a look around a little bit. And check see out the what, airspace. Familiarize yeah, yourself. check out the airspace, that kind of thing. And so the, the WELO is the one who sets all that stuff up, organizes all those things, um, and that, so that, that's kind of, that makes it very easy. You know, when we fly in, for example, I'll, I'll use London for an example. London's airspace is pretty tricky, very busy. Um, and when we went over there, we had a lot of moving pieces. We brought a lot of aircraft. Uh, the Brits, you know, the prime minister was involved in this flight. You know, there were, there were various other airborne contingencies. Uh, and we had one guy, the, the, it was a London police helicopter pilot, great dude. I'm still friends with him today. He was the guy who basically, like, he knows the airspace very well. We did all the planning with him, and he basically said, okay, I'm going to be in the front, and you guys just follow me. So they, they make it very easy, or we make it very easy because of these wheelos and the diplomatic coordination and the local aviation guys, because when he's on board, you don't want, you don't want there to be any hiccups. Right. You know, and, for example, in Switzerland, we had a very similar um, scenario when, when when I went to Switzerland back in January, does from Zurich up to the Davos, we we, you know, we we had Swiss Air Force escorts. The Swiss are very protective about their airspace, and well, they should be. And so he basically did all the coordination for us, and it was kind of a follow me sort of thing. Hmm. Um, so it's it's not That's as interesting. I would not have it, expected it that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's their country, and we are their guests, and for sure. we will you know we'll. we'll uh, accommodate whatever you know whatever they want within reason um we will do you know, one thing go, it is you don't just go in there yelling murica at the top of your exactly do yeah, you know. although sometimes <laughs> it seems that way because we bring so many things with us but <laughs> yeah. but yeah i mean we're guests in those countries and, and those guys and and I, I have never been to a country that that the people that we worked with were not just gracious people hard-working people that were just kind of excited to be a part of it you know and it's it's pretty neat to even even in the u.s or foreign countries every place i've ever been it's never been a political thing it's always been a just people happy to help and be a part of the be a part of the process professionals doing their job and taking That's pride right. in it yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Good right. yeah yeah that is cool uh so um, sorry well, Eric, what was the other just like a walkthrough of an operational mission, right? What's okay. a, just like a quick, quick, how's it go from start to finish? How's, in, in, yeah, particular, so, in particular, whatever you can say about the actual sure. transport right. event, you know, not, not, um, every, I'm sure you can't 
give too many details, but whatever you can dish out, people will eat yeah. up, I'm sure. Yeah. So, no, we, we uh, you know, we go all over the world with them, even if we're not flying them. Um, but when we are flying them, for example, you know, New York is because we do. Yeah, he goes to New York. Every president goes to New York a lot, New York City a lot. Um, but it's generally the same. We always go there a few days ahead of time. And as the flight leader, so whoever the Marine One is, so the whoever the aircraft commander of Marine One is, we call the Marine One. Uh, uh-huh. Usually, your fourth year, if you're chosen, you're Marine One. I was a Marine One last year, and I did a New York City trip, and so I was the flight lead for the whole evolution as the Marine One. So you fly up there a couple days ahead of time. Uh, you go to the airport. And then you do a rehearsal. You do a very scripted, very um, precise rehearsal of a step-by-step. I mean, exact, you, you go to the parking spots that you're going to park at when you wait for them. You have the crew chiefs go through their door procedures. You know, they're, they're very scripted. That Marine One crew chief, he, he, I mean, the number of steps he takes, how quickly they open the door, that is a very scripted process. So they practice that. Um, and then we... We taxi out. We go down the same taxiway at the runway that we will do with him on board. We fly the same routes and same altitudes, and it, it's a very precise evolution. Um, if if the event is going to be at night, we'll try and rehearse it at night. If it's going to be daytime, we'll try and rehearse it daytime. Yeah, okay. and, and so that we'll much detail. A of days That's cool. Yeah, it, it's very precise. Uh, again, it's it's you know there's always somebody watching, um, and and that's one of the things I think that makes that unit very professional is is, you know, you go to New York City for five days, and if you have to work all five of those days to get that rehearsal right, that's what we'll do. Right. You know, if, if you get it right, then you get a couple of days off to enjoy the city. That's great, but that's not why we... Yeah, not why it's really there. cool to get to travel all these places, but at the end of the day, you're there to do a job. And yeah. and uh, I can say without reservation that HMX is, is pretty good about keeping that in mind. You know, I've, I've gotten to, like, Switzerland was probably one of the cooler trips I've ever been on, but... One of the cooler trips I ever went on in the States was Cape Canaveral back in June. We got to go and we were there when the rocket went up and the whole thing. But, you know, we're still there to do a job. Um, It's just a, it's, it's pretty, pretty precise process. And so then when he, when we do our event and we drop him off wherever he, we're going to drop him off, for example, the Wall Street pad, he'll get on, uh, he'll get, he'll get on the limo and go wherever he's going to go. And, and then if, if it's just a couple of hours, we'll stay there. If he's there for a couple of days, we'll go back to whatever airport we were going to. We'll clean the airplanes. You know, they're the cleanest airplanes. After every flight, they basically get washed and waxed. Um, you know, they're they're oh yeah, extraordinarily well taken care of. I think you so. Do we'll the go back to wherever. The maintenance and, like fifty yeah. percent early too, don't you? On them, something like there's, that. Yeah, I can't remember the numbers, but but uh, it is something like that. I mean, obviously, there's there's no room for a maintenance error. You know? Yeah, no, uh, they're <laughs> very very well taken care of. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then, you know, in New York City, we'll, we'll, when he leaves, um, we'll pack up. And for New York, since it's only about a two-hour flight from Quantico, we'll fly the aircraft up there. But if it's, for example, you know, Florida or Texas or anywhere else, we'll put them in the back of C-17s and, and, and load them up and fly them down there and then offload them. So do, do you have your own C-17 or does that coordinate with the Air Force? It's coordinated with the Air Force. So that brings a whole nother set of individuals in. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the that are involved in this is pretty impressive, and how how smoothly it happens is is pretty pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. I I wonder how many people are involved from all the services combined when 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 the president of the United States wants to go from Washington D.C. to Moscow for a one or two day meeting with 
Putin, how many man hours are involved in making that happen? It's got to be tens it's of thousands. It's an excellent question, but it's got to be a lot. It's a lot. It's amazing. And it's, it goes off with the, the I mean, office you guys, of the presidents of the United States. You know, it's, it's a very yeah, powerful. It, it has to be a certain, office. you have to project yeah. a certain professionalism yeah. in every single thing. It's, of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you can't, there's no compromise there. So you said 1957 was the first presidential flight? I right? think so. I think it's 1957. And I think the emergency that Eisenhower was trying to get back to the White House was the, the integration of the schools in Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> so do you guys have. I don't know if have, that's true, but I think that's what it is. Yeah. Do you do you guys have a uh, have a sign on the wall somewhere that says twenty two thousand nine hundred and ninety seven days without an accident? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> that's sixty three years. So. That's sixty three so. incident free yeah. years. That's insane. I'd have to look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I mean, that, that's about everything I had, guys, on HMX one. Okay. I mean, there's there's some personal stuff that we can maybe kind of skip because it's getting to be. Three hours, uh, yeah, but okay. who, who else has got questions? I know we had some trivia. Uh, I was just going to kind of wrap up and asking you what you think about, you know, I mean, you're kind of, you've left that other than going back and being, uh, you know, the colonel over it all. What, uh, what do you feel about leaving it? I mean, it's, it's got to you know, be sweet. It was bittersweet. Yeah, it, it was, like I said, it was a phenomenal experience. It was a phenomenal experience for my whole family. I mean, it was hard for the family to a certain degree because I was gone a lot. Right. But, you know, I did. my wife and I did get to go to the White House Christmas party last year. I got to take my kids to Camp David. I mean, they got to see and do oh, things. so cool. They wouldn't have been able to see anywhere else. That's so awesome. that, that's yeah. kind right. of a high point. But wow. at the end of the four years, I, I was ready to go. Um, yeah. And I like I loved every minute of it. But like I, you, you, know, I remember you asked if, if I knew when my last flight was. And I didn't. And when that flight, I did that last lift. It was a beautiful day. The weather was great. You know, everything worked out fine, uh, which it usually does. The weather is usually the, the biggest difficulty that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're like, yeah, you can do one more if you want. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to walk away on that one because yeah, VIP flying is a, is a break-even game. You know, you can do everything perfect every single time, and that's the expectation. But if you have one misstep <laughs> or error, then, you know, <laughs> that's that's it. So. Yeah. I was perfectly comfortable to walk away when I did. You, you don't want to be the guy who, who changes the sign from 22,997 no. no. days without an accident no. to one day without an accident. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I, I loved every minute of it. It was a great tour, great people. I mean, uh, awesome. but yeah, I, I'm not, uh, I, it, was, it was bittersweet to leave, but, you know, time to move on to something else. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Ke- Kevin, did you want to ask about future plans and that kind of stuff? Current assignment. Uh, I one of the questions I saw that I wanted to ask was uh, auto rotations. I was wondering how high do you auto rotate a full scale, or can you safely auto rotate a full scale helicopter? So, um, in in the training command in Cobras, we had various profiles that we would fly. And the first one, you would start at a thousand feet AGL, and that was a one eighty auto, meaning, and if I'm if I'm if, if I'm Dumb it down, tell me, but, but you know, you'd be at basically in the downwind, you'd roll the throttles off yeah. at a thousand feet and you do a hundred degree turn down to the grass. Uh-huh. If you're doing a 90 auto, we'd start at 750 feet. If you're doing a straight in, we'd start at 500. And one of the training maneuvers we had in a Cobra was called the high speed, low level auto, where you would get to 200 feet, 120 knots, and then you would roll the throttles off and do a practice auto. 
Um, so that's about as low as we ever did them. Well, and you in could really- Cobras, they were they were all power recovery autos, meaning we never did a full auto touchdown. Um, you okay. always recovered at five feet. So you you uh-huh. initiated your you know you went into the flare at a hundred feet, you rocked, you leveled, and you rolled the throttles up and recovered at five feet. It was a kind of a a mitigation. Um, yeah, just to make sure you're not putting damage on the skids and the yeah, airframe. Yeah. Damage in the airframes. Yeah, yeah it's, wow. a, it's a lot so of that money. That was pretty standard through through most marine helicopters. I know some 53 pilots. You know that thing is a huge aircraft, and most of them said if they ever had to do a full auto, they probably wouldn't make it because it's just. I mean, it, it's. I don't know how heavy it is, but it is an eighty thousand pound helicopter. It, oh, it's auto It autos right. like a brick. You know, it's yeah. Not, I mean, it's not. Wow. Yeah. I, I bet I could find a video of somebody autoing. <laughs> Probably. I, I, I keep looking for that. That's one of my questions. Like, what is the biggest, what is the heaviest helicopter you have ever heard of someone successfully walking away from an auto rotation? Oh, boy. I don't know. Is I that mean, like, not common. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I, I know that, like, in a 53 specifically, it has three engines. Um, <clears throat> And it has three engines because it's damn heavy. That you know, your odds of losing all three are pretty low. Yeah, um, yeah. and I think it's part of the way it's designed that way. I mean, if you lose two of them, you're coming down, but at least you have something. You know? well, what's the What's the biggest her- helicopter you know of that 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 uh, aviators actually train auto rotations? Do you just train in all of them, or are there some that they you just do. don't bother? Yeah, I think in the fifty three, because that's the biggest one I have any really knowledge of. Um, I think they they train to it. But one, most of it's done in the simulator. And two, a lot of it is when they do it in the aircraft, they do more high altitude emergencies, meaning they go to a certain altitude and they, I think they, they roll them off or they don't even roll them off. They probably just lower the collective and kind of get used to that flight profile. Because I, I think to try and do a practice auto on that thing is y- your chances of doing a successful practice auto are not nearly as good as you are balling it up. You know, yeah, the mm, yeah, right, makes sense. Right. Just do it if you have to. Risk versus reward yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. that makes sense. Same reason why I don't auto rotate my helicopter. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, dangerous. Yeah, like you've Yeah. Did you did you see that video of of Matt Bodos doing all those crazy or of uh, Bobby Watts doing all those different auto rotations? Travis, did you get a chance to yeah, watch that? Is that the one? one you sent me? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, at he was doing one. like twenty. Uh, auto rotations a to z or something yeah what did you think of that pretty crazy i mean they're they're you know in in a in a we didn't do them much in the h3 and h60 because again those are national assets and Uh you don't want to ball them up but doing them in in a whiskey we did them a lot especially as an frs instructor is one of the things you sorry fleet replacement squadron so Uh When a guy gets out of flight school, he learns to fly the Cobra, he would come to our squadron and we'd teach him. We did him a lot there. We did him a lot. Um, and they're, you know, we're very precise about the way we train to them. But, uh, yeah, you, you couldn't do anything like that. You know, Never went up 10,000 feet and then went full down and then no, rolled, in, I know rolled, some guys in, rolled inverted and went yeah. full up and then rolled rolled and then pulled down again just <laughs> the, for fun. Except for the inverted part. I know some guys, I know some guys who were test pilots that would go up to 10,000 feet and chop them. But, uh, yeah, I never did that. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> insane. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty insane. Awesome. Uh, man. All right. Uh, well, I guess last chance for, well, Steve, you tell me, but, you know, everybody jump in with your last weird oddball yeah. questions. I'm curious. Um, 
How many times I'm, have you I'm fall? done with all the, all the formal. I have no more structure for this stuff, so you guys go nuts. Cool. So I'm just curious. How many times have you flown to New Jersey? <laughs> oh boy. How many times have you have you A ruined lot. Steve's flying day? Yes, yeah. the TFRs up the every weekend yeah. pretty much for us. <laughs> yep, yeah, I've I've been involved in those quite a few times. That was a pretty regular trip for us. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> we know it well. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> my daughter calls it the TFRs a Trump flight restriction. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh, Daddy's not flying. This is a Trump flight restriction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. yeah, even the RC community has to shut it down when Trump's at town. Yeah. So we, yeah. yeah. Just, you know, understandable. Yeah. Of course. All right. Uh, does anyone else have anything else they want to ask? Nothing to ask. Just thanks so much for spending this time to yeah, seriously. into uh, something yeah, that you know, most people never know yeah. about. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to do it. Thanks so totally for, uh, for offering it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to. Definitely say, yeah, from the show, from all our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your service and your contributions Perfect. to our country. And also, I did look at your bio, and uh, happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Travis, I'd just like to add to that. Yeah, thanks so much for your service. Thanks for doing what you got to do to keep our president, no matter which president it is, safe. You know, the whole, the whole squadron, man. Yeah. Yeah. I awesome. That. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I think we're going to move it on to the planker segment, and I think we're going to cut a little short on this one. We'll we'll move the news announcements and uh, what's next for the hobby on the next episode. Okay. So we got a planker segment. Let's roll it. All right. is going to execute everybody by throwing them in the sewer. Unbelievable. That thing is just so awesome. That doesn't look good. But it does look a lot good. What? Master, Master, why do you guys have your man parts hanging out? <laughs> so good. But aren't we in danger? Fuck that. Oh, no. 
I had to rub it out. And that was nice. All right. I might have to do that. I'm loving that thing. Oh, my. Yeah, how long do you think you'll go on fondling it before you'll get to, right on to it? Uh, I'd say a good while. You guys are killing it. Oh, that's... Oh, that, 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 I ain't got it. Oh, there uh-huh. we go. Oh, back. Okay, I got it. No, wait. Ow. Uh, 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 oh, shit. Bam. That's it. Manual labor. He's got it down there. We are doomed, R2. Has it been fondled sufficiently? Uh, well, that it, might could, sure. it, it might could do it, have a little more fondling. How much fondling do you think it could take? Oh, it could take a lot. Before you wear it out? Yeah. It's just so much fun. That's saying a lot. Daggone, I nicked one of my balls. Too close to just nick the side of my ball just a little bit. lousy out here. Uh, Planker's still on vacation. Wonderful weather for vacation. There's one new section in this episode that I may put in every following episode, which is a short little piece that's serious, no joke. This one is for my dear friend, you know who you are. For folks that don't understand this, this is a Korean version of Happy Birthday. Happy Birthday to you. Plankity plank plank. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. They didn't speak Chinese. I don't know Korean. Coming soon. <laughs> Go again? Keep it cool. Oh crap. 
had a few little boo-boos, but... That means if you get underneath it, he's going to pee on you. Hold on, that E-boy drugs. That's it. I didn't get oh. it. Oh my god! That was called Less Plank. That episode. <laughs> I I want to know where he got all that audio of my ex-wife there at the end, <laughs> growling and carrying on. <laughs> I want to know where he got Steve's laugh. Ooh, hoo, 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 I want to know where he gets everything. What this episode guy. was that from? I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! Every every time I hear a planker segment, I have this vague feeling that something is wrong, but I can never. <laughs> <laughs> Everything it. is wrong. I love yeah. it. That's so great. Something is wrong. So great. Uh, did, did that? Did that? Uh, did that debt collector from the 200th episode ever call back asking for Mike D? No, he never did. Oh. Yeah, I think they I guess, gave I guess up. He, I guess he didn't find him because Mike isn't dead yet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we're gonna end the show now. So, Eric, want to give you a huge. Huge uh, thanks for for setting this up, yeah, and for coming on the show. Pleasure, yeah, this was great. You know, I know we've been talking about this for several months, trying to you know get everything mm-hmm. going, and and uh, now that it's all you know, we got it all recorded. It's just, it was amazing. It was such a great conversation. It was so much information that we learned. It was fantastic. Yeah, I've, I'm I'm sorry I didn't cut it more, but man, I I tried. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and what a better time. It's, it's tough to have. Uh, uh, an American patriot, an American hero on our show, man. Uh huh. No, I, I was blown away. I just yeah. I was too. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable, man. His whole family, man, just yeah, that un- oh unbelievable. My right. Yeah. Wow. And you know what? They're they're they would consider themselves regular people. Oh yeah, and I'm just a regular person. Yeah. Yeah. They just did what they had to do. Dude. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. Amazing. Yep. All right. So, yeah, want to just uh, give a huge shout-out to you, Eric, and Lieutenant Colonel uh, Travis Patterson. Thanks to our listeners. Free our skies, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. 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 That was an unbelievable show, man. Dude, that was great. That was crazy good. I hope the listeners enjoyed as much as we did. Yeah. It was that was great having him on. Yeah. 
Well, like, I've never had a podcast where I teared up and had to rub down goosebumps at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, right? uh, yeah. I mean, you know, just the level, if you really just think about that guy's life, he's committed his whole life and his family's his committed family, theirs yeah. to support uh-huh. him. Yes. Um, I'm just talking about his wife and, you know, kids. Um, they've yeah. sacrificed yeah. a lot too, but oh, yeah. it's, just, it's just amazing, man, that we've got, uh, what's that saying? We've got uh, hard men that'll do. Uh, bad things in the dark of night to keep us safe here at home yeah i like the my other favorite quote is there are no extraordinary men there are ordinary men in extraordinary situations and some of these guys we've talked to and some of the guys that i know personally man are very close to being extraordinary men dude Mm. Mm. unbelievable nice we we could do and obviously this is the wrong podcast but that that guy's family could do a whole podcast on Oh, on God, uh, yeah. on how to stay together as a military family. I mean, the, the, just the way they support each other and make sure that they're not lonely and not stuck at home dealing with three kids and two dogs and oh. all that stuff. They they have it down to a science, man. They really, really know how to operate effectively. And, and you know, I mean, military uh, divorces are just through the damn roof, even yeah. more than civilian ones. And yeah. that 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 family, man, I'm telling you, they are strong people, all of them. This and they character attracts character, you know. Yeah, it's just that simple. You know, it might, somebody, it might be. Yeah. yeah, and to be volunteers too, you know, on top of it all. Right. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Well, I think he dropped off. Travis did. Uh oh. Oh. He did. I saw him disconnect. Yeah. Dang it, Eric! You run off our guest. <laughs> we'll try to add him. Try just try to add him back. We'll. See.